This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 541 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Noko Nolan. Now, like myself, Noko has worked for multiple departments. He began living in New York, got hired at LAPD, moved to NYPD for a while, and then moved back to LAPD. The reason this is important is he has such a unique perspective because of that West Coast, East Coast experience on a lot of things that we discussed. So we talk about 9-11 through his eyes, gangs, prostitution, the war on drugs, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating you leave truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 541 episodes now for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Noko Nolan. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
So, Noko, I want to start by saying welcome. Welcome to Ocala. Thank you so much for driving all the way up. And uh, it's great to finally meet face to face. Yes, same here. I appreciate the opportunity of, I didn't even know when you sent the address. I was like, how do I say this? Ocala, Ocala. <laughs> like, where is this? My mom but, says Ocala. Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking like, you know, Irish way, O with a little apostrophe to it, you know, throw some Gaelic into it. But uh, no, it's, uh, you got a beautiful home, beautiful family. You're, you're set, mate. You're, you're doing it right. So proud to see um, where the podcast has taken you and get to see behind the, behind the mic, behind, you know, you just hear that audio and a little picture, a thumbnail from social media. But to be able to experience it and share it, I appreciate the invite very much, brother. Yeah, well, like I said, I appreciate you coming up because as we talked before we start recording, the the face to face is the you know my favorite way of doing it. Obviously, geography and you know microorganisms get in the way sometimes, so it's uh, it's great to be able to sit down with you. Yes, yes, I, I agree. So, for people listening, where do you normally call home base? Home right now is Southern California, Hermosa Beach five minute walk from the beach, my Shangri-La in LA. And that's, uh, it's a long way from where I grew up, but it's, yeah, it's my slice of heaven. Pretty, uh, pretty grateful to land there. Uh, but out here in Florida by you, my, uh, parents are out here. So it's always good to visit Florida and, uh, see the other side of the coast. And sometimes I'll bring my gi and, and do some jujitsu out here and then do some swimming. So replicate a little bit of my life in LA out here so I dig it out here brilliant well, when you're here next I'm gonna take you up to my um gym up in Gainesville yes it's a yes. great great school I think we you've been how long have you been doing jujitsu now so I started in um shoot box in uh, oh, yeah, LA you go when back. they were there yeah, yeah Melrose um and I've said this before on here but at that point it was just like fight club like right. it was just very little learning it was absolutely a great way of realizing I wasn't the world's biggest pussy because I could take some punishment. But right. uh, so really, I started truly learning jujitsu um, a few years ago now in the jungle, which is in Orlando, another great, great school, Mike Lee. Um, but I was on shift and I lived up here, which is almost an hour and a half away. Okay. Um, so I come off at 24 after getting my ass handed to me and it was really really hard not to just go home and sleep so i ultimately not making excuses but you know my, my training was already inconsistent i was usually there on a good week twice a week mm -hmm. on a bad week once a week so my learning curve was you know very very slight so now having transitioned out of the fire service i've been at this school for four months um and i, I tell people like i'm still trying to trying to work my way up to feeling like i actually own the blue belt that sits around my waist because uh you talk about imposter syndrome when you're you know <laughs> two steps forward 400 steps back you know there's, there's a lot of work to do to get back to you know feeling like you you have the skill set that at least a blue belt should have you know basic understanding of you know transitions and some of the basic um uh submissions and those kind of things right on right on that's good now at the firehouse did did, um, did they have mats there or anything did uh guys get down over there no not not where i was there weren't very many fighters around when in anaheim there was uh one guy marcel who used to do um boxing training with we had a bag up there and he would okay. show me stuff he was actually a golden gloves boxer wow. um so that was good and then um another boxer in the last place but yeah as far as matt so i used to roll with one guy 
on the grass outside for a bit, but he wasn't really trained, so it was more of a just a, a fight. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there are, you know, I know, I do know of stations where, yeah, the guys will bring in mats and yeah, I figured that'd roll. be the perfect place to settle disputes. Yeah, know? oh no, this this one was too. Yeah, yeah so no, you're cooking tonight. No, <laughs> no. Beautiful, beautiful. So, well, you said talked about not, you know, growing up in California, so. Yeah. I'd love to start chronolog- chronologically at the very beginning. So yes. tell me where you were born and then tell me a little about your family dynamic and how many uh, siblings you had. Oh man, it's a, yeah, that's, that's a quite a mess. Yeah. It's just a typical Irish New York family grew up in Queens, New York, Ridgewood Glendale area for those that know. And, uh, looking back at it, very dysfunctional household. Everyone, pretty much in my family, was an alcoholic. <laughs> it came with uh, came with the DNA, the bloodline. So, coming to um, coming to dealing with conflict and uh, non permissive environments, pretty much grew up in one. So, you know, the, you know, there's the old age age old thing of like, do you choose the profession or does the profession choose you? You know, it was just it was in within my lineage of uh, quelling disputes. And uh, just being able to thrive in a high intensity environment, so that was that was the household, that was the neighborhood, that was the city within seventies, eighties, and nineties. My um, my formative years of uh, living in New York City. So to deal with what I do now, it was just part of everyday living. So yeah, my my since I'm visiting my family out here, it's uh, it's interesting to see what what formed you and where you are now so like i mentioned uh growing up with uh in and around people um that were heavy users of alcohol i always try to try to avoid that but then it's you know, when it's within your bloodline it's kind of tough to avoid and so pretty much through my teenage years i was uh you know subscribed to like the straight edge mentality of lifestyle of no alcohol no drugs and um, I always knew I wanted to go into law enforcement and having any alcohol related things or things hampering the fitness. I, I knew that was something to avoid. So pretty much stayed clean uh, the whole time. And until I got into, you know, you get into the uh, law enforcement lifestyle and it's very tumultuous. And part of the bonding experience of winding down is, you know, going to the pub and what have you and uh you know getting after it in that way and forming relationships in uh you know not the best of environments but just part of the process they called like a uh, choir practice was what joe wamba famous lapd author coined it and um yeah i would kind of wish you know I'm, i didn't go down that road and then so like in the 20s and you know late 20s probably to you know 30s and then into my 40s, I squared away my act as far as, you know, unhealthy lifestyles, bad eating, but, you know, drinking and all the activities that occur after shift, you know, where you, you come in home, it was just, you know, part of that, that dynamic, you get off at eight in the morning and you're all full of still with filled with adrenaline and you got to unleash everyone up, you go home and no one's home. But uh, after work, you know, you get that invite. Hey, we're going to uh, we're going to the watering hole. You're like, yeah, let's go. I got nothing nothing else going on at eight in the morning. Uh, everyone's at work, and man, I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. Um, I wish, you know, 
all this talk now that we're exposed to of wellness and everything else, you know, healthy lifestyles, there was no one really preaching that. You really had to like seek that out or have a really good mentor. And at that time, I just didn't have that. I didn't have that exposure to it, unfortunately, but maybe better late than never. So in the last, uh, I think it's been almost like three years plus or whatever of uh, no, no booze and, you know, eating plant-based diet and what have you and uh, really clean things up for the better. And then all the activities that go with that. You have find out you have so much spare time. Yeah. You realize how many, how many hours <laughs> spending at the pub and hanging out, just in, you know, engaging in hooliganism and everything else. And I was like, wow, I have a lot of time to do a lot of great activities. So, so yeah, so that was, uh, that was my upbringing was in a, you know, tumultuous environments, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So it made me stronger. And, you know, that was my path in law enforcement was just dealing with those, those environments. And I just thrive in that. It doesn't affect me really whatsoever. I mean, it affects me, but, uh, compared to the average person, it's just, you know, just another every day and just another day at the office, you know, like people, that's why I never understood like when you're first day in the academy or first, just the academy in general and people yelling and screaming and, People don't know how to deal with that. I'm like, that was just, that was my house. You know, like <laughs> yelling and screaming. That was, a, that was a hobby. That was a sport. So I could deal with that. You know, it's an easy thing. So yeah, just policing and law enforcement dealing with uh, chaos and just thriving. It. And I, I really love it. So I've been doing it now for like 26 years. And like we were talking off mic, just no end in sight. I'm just going to, you know, keep doing it till the wheels fall off. And just as long as I'm, healthy, happy, and I feel I have something to add to the party, I'm going to keep doing it because um, luckily I've worked with some really great people and the times that we're in, uh, very, very chaotic again and destructive and a lot of, lot of um, tumultuous times. And I see them as just opportunities instead of, um, you know, precursors to blocking you and, you know, bringing you down. I see it the opposite. So, uh, one of the messages I try to tell my people and, and anyone else that's listening to me and fortunate, fortunate enough to maybe take some tidbits is the, all these things that are going supposedly wrong. These are opportunities for everyone, you know, grasp onto it. Just try to find the little gaps within where you could exploit it in a good way of, of being of service and, um, and, and taking these challenges. Uh, Cause it's, they're really not setbacks. When you look back, when you're done with your career, uh, people are going to, you know, rookies or whatever family members are going to be like, wow, you made it through, you know, whatever period, the pandemic, the the riots, the this and that of all the obstacles. And that's going to be a badge of honor. So you, you want these situations. I mean, it's unfortunate they do happen, but you want to, you want to, you want to see how you are as that uh, captain, those rough seas, you know, that makes a great captain, you know, when things are going great, that's status quo. And uh, you don't have those those, um, those gaps where you could really plug in when things are going good, everyone, no one wants to change anything. So within this time period, look for how you could be of change, how you could, uh, really plug in. And, um, like I said, be of service and take it as a, it's a good thing everything that's going on within our world and profession, you know, it's tough to see it when it, you know, it affects you or your loved ones, but it's grab, grab the reins, hold on and, you know, look for those openings. Absolutely. Well, I know I heard you in, um, I think it was the Books Behind the Badge podcast. So I want to give a shout out to them. 
Um, yes. And you were talking about growing up near 75th precinct. Have I got that right? Yes. So tell me about what that was like growing up in your you know school years in that area. Oh man, it was great because yeah, the seven five yeah. For those that don't know, in New York City, there's uh, like we have like a hundred precincts, police stations where it's divided up. So the seventy fifth precinct is uh, that bordered my neighborhood, and at the time it was the deadliest precinct in New York City. So in you know from the eighties and nineties and the height of the drug epidemic, and Later on, once I joined NYPD, I worked one of the adjoining precincts next to that in Brooklyn. It was called the 8-3 Precinct or the 83rd Precinct. And the 7-5 Precinct is famous for a documentary or one of the things that's in, in modern day times, if you want to sort out an unbelievable documentary, check out uh, the 70, uh, the 7-5, it's called. And it details uh, a group of corrupt policemen headed by spearheaded by this one guy named Mike Dowd, which um, that's a story unto itself of we ended up linking up through um, through a, a mutual friend. He was did some some of the worst, horrible, despicable things. But then later on, once he did time and sorted himself out, uh, it became got clean, became of service and and started trying to help policemen. But we're um, we're kind of an unforgiving lot, unfortunately, something that the the public will never understand or know. So I kind of like doing these podcasts. Um, we're always the hardest on ourselves than the public ever will be. You know, people always ask me like, oh, how is it dealing with the public now and riots and all that stuff? I'm like, oh, that's that's the easy stuff. That's we we train for it. That's what I want. But it's the hardest is internally, which we don't get away with anything contrary to public opinion. We get slammed by our own department more than that the public will ever know. And, uh, you know, some of it's rightly deserved. And um, so anyway, yeah, with Mike, he, uh, the police department will never forgive, you know, members of law enforcement will never forgive him for what he did. And right or wrong, you know, he paid his price. He, in, in the documentary, they show him, you know, talking about his exploits of drug dealing and all this other stuff. And, but I believe um, being raised as a Catholic and uh, this country is kind of raised on like Judeo-Christian values. Part of that comes with uh, confession and penance and making amends, if you will. And but it's it's weird within the profession. Once you 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 know you tarnish that shield, you're written off a life, no matter what you do. You could be you could become the Pope, whatever, Mother Teresa. It's like nope, you still screwed up. And I think that's part of the the our uh, upbringing through the system of once you screwed up, you're dead to us. But I believe in the underdog, the redemption. And uh, figures like that, like, well, if you did screw up, you did some of the worst things imaginable, you know, what choice do you have but to rehabilitate yourself and try to try to um, be a model of what what you could do if you did it wrong, but now you're doing it right. So, um, yeah, kind of a controversial uh, time period within policing, which was, you know, New York City. And so growing up in that environment, a lot of uh, you saw a lot of people doing the wrong thing and. It was accepted. I mean, at the time, I was talking to someone else about this. The, the whole city was corrupt in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it kind of just seeps into your pores of that's just the way to operate. Just that hustling mentality of trying to get over because you're so beaten down by what was going on within the city that you had to, you had to do those things, a hustle just to, to keep, uh, you know, keep your head above water. And um, a lot of it's unhealthy. It's not the right thing to do on um, the long view, but that's just the way it was accepted. And, um, 
and kind of uh, people prospered through that type of mentality. So leaving that city kind of gives you a different point of view of like, wow, I really I grew up in a screwed up environment, but you know, that's just part of uh, part of dealing with growing up and then and then trying to alter things and kind of uh, unfucking yourself somewhat of how you your mindset and way of operating. So. Yeah, it's interesting because I did see 7.5 now. Now you come to mention it. So yeah. I remember clearly and there was drug dealing and there was like protection rackets, but yeah. all from law enforcement. But I think what doesn't get told is probably the same with, you know, a lot of the the violence in LAPD is, you know, well, what, what, what was the environment that these officers were working in? Again, not making it justified, but if you're in an area, for example, Compton back in the 80s, and you've got these murders happening over and over again. And then there's this kind of, you know, war. But you, these men and women are in an area where these, you know, these some of these residents have no problems murdering each other in plain sight. And now, you know, they hate the police as well. Like, what would you do as a person if you were basically working in, in a war zone like that, you know? So I think painting the bigger picture, like you said, what, you know, were they underpaid? Were they overworked? Were they, you know, having to meet violence with violence? Not making it right, but if we just talk about, oh, the police did this wrong, we don't talk about the entire environment, I think we miss a big part of the puzzle. Absolutely, at both sides. I mean, the people that grow up in those neighborhoods, myself included, the abnormal is the normal. So if your four square blocks, all you're saturated with is negativity. I mean, that's just the way you're, that's your, you know, default operating system. So I think that's one of the great things about the internet, especially when it comes to gangs and what have you, is these kids, um, all they knew with those four square blocks and their family. And if that's the way they're doing things, it's where you're more likely you're going to do things. But now you have that portal to the rest of the world and you could see how there's, there's life outside of that, of that gang culture. And you're like, okay, maybe I don't want to do this. I want to be X, Y, Z. So I, th I think that's been a great equalizer and, you know, decimating some of the, that gang mentality. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think that was a big thing that when they talk about de decreasing crime, what were the, some of the contributing factors? I think that that had a lot to do with that and never gets spoken about, especially in the inner city. And now that's so it's common more commonplace to access to the internet. So you're just not bombarded with the same, you know, lifestyle that permeated generations of, of, you know, of kids in, in the ghettos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to get to another reverse engineer that I talk about a lot, but I mean, before I even get there, we'll wait for that further in the conversation, but I've never heard that particular thing mentioned before, but that makes perfect sense. You know, it's about hope. And if all, you know, if your entire world is, uh, you know, your, your role models more often than not are the dealers and the, you know, the pimps and some of these, you know, members of the underworld that a lot of us see in our communities, and that's what children are surrounded by, then that's, you know, the, the only obvious path that appears to be for many of them. But now you open a world where if you have a device and you can see, especially if you're lucky enough to see some of the more positive mentors out there, I, I can absolutely see how a lot more young boys and girls would question some of the ways that they were told, oh, this is the journey you have to take. And yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see the actual statistics of, you know, especially social media and YouTube and then how that correlates with, with gang membership. Absolutely. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, new rookies being fed into the system, you know, military, fire, police, you know, if you 
have a couple of people that you or people that you follow and they're preaching the, you know, that healthy, positive mentality, positive mental attitude and everything else. And I mean, that's very, that could totally steer the course or course of your career in a different way than when I came through. There was, everything was just, you know, you know, um, you know, just the exact way I was telling you about before, just drinking and, you know, sex and everything else, rock and roll, just rock and roll with a, with a gun, basically, you know, it was just, uh, that was how I was brought up through the, the system of where it was accepted, having that badge of honor of having a divorce, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're like, oh, you're not a real cop unless you have had two divorces. I mean, looking back at it now, it's just, you know, it's horrible, but you know, that's what we were, that's what we were preached. So now you talked about having a straight edge lifestyle despite living in a rough area. So what were some of the outlets that you had that kept you away from gangs, drugs, that kind of thing? Music was the foundation for sure. Uh, I grew up in a house of music. Parents were huge um, fans of, uh, of music and that's why I'm out here with you. I have a um, tradition with my old man. He went to see every Rolling Stones um concert since uh 64 when the stones first landed out here uh except for when he volunteered to go to the u.s army and fight in vietnam that was the only time he didn't see them so he's seen them at every tour and i've seen them with him on every tour since they reformed back in 1989 uh, that was like you know the oldest um, when i was like you know 13 or whatever it was it was just a weed lad when it got to see them and then we maintained that tradition of seeing them together so that's why i came out here Got to see them in Tampa. So that, that foundation of music, I was always curious. I grew up solo, solo child. So books were kind of like my surrogate, uh, surrogate, you know, siblings. So by getting interested in um, all the music they love, the Stones, Zeppelin and Yardbirds, all those type of, you know, British early, you know, British invasion type bands. And then I just read about them and then sought out, you know, the blues guys that came before them, Robert Johnson, Money Waters. So I just had an instant connection to music and then look, jumping into playing guitar and then a buddy of mine playing drums and then forming a band that was like that early nucleus of, uh, of kind of like being a leader of, you know, forming bands and then, you know, forming little crews after that of little fraternal type groups within the police department and within our neighborhood. I was always kind of like the main instigator of uh, getting people together and have it for a common cause and then pushing it forward. So thankfully, by reading about these musicians, um, I kind of learned about all the, you know, drugs and alcohol and the effect it had on them and how it stifled so many careers. So I always had that positive outlet of of music, going to concerts, learning my craft and then going from there. So that would definitely kept me away from a lot. Um, even though like some of these bands that, especially in the, the hardcore scene, the punk rock scene afterwards, everyone was, you know, you know, sniffing whatever and shooting whatever I was knew my goal was to join law enforcement. I couldn't get involved in any of that. So after the show was gone, hit the road and go back home and, uh, go to school or go to work where, just to see student growing up in high school, I was in a, always in autodidact uh, where I loved just learning on my own. I could never have someone just preach to me and say, this is what you should learn. This is what you need to do. I just never, that, that straightforward way of learning, I always had to come to it myself. Like we were talking about jujitsu earlier when I first came to LA in the academy it was 96. So um, Horian and Hoyce Gracie, 
were very instrumental in setting up a, a jujitsu program within uh, uh, the police academy in LA. And, uh, but it was like a foreign concept. It was like seeing, seeing alien technology. I'm like, why are you guys on the ground? What's all this twisting and turning? I'm like came from a boxing background. So my, just my, you know, my lizard mind wasn't ready for that yet. So it had to come to me later on, way later on, you know, the hard way when I'm in my forties now, I wish I started like everyone else, you know, started in the twenties and, you know, when it first started, but Hey, better late than never we're here. So yeah, I always had to come to things on my own. So that was the way I always learned best. So high school for me, it was kind of like a social club. It was just a way to hang out with friends and cause trouble and, you know, just have fun. And, but I had a couple of good teachers that were, uh, were cops and, uh, military guys that really made an impression on me. So shout out to all those teachers that, uh, that are still out there grinding. It's like, even though the kid's getting bad grades, um, you know, keep in mind that those those lessons may come to fruition as seeds later on down the road so a lot of those seeds were uh, planted and came into trees for me down the road so uh i was listening (laughs) (laughs) it took longer for me to accept it so always took the hard road so tell me about your dad for a moment so he signed up Mm -hmm. for vietnam what are some of the perspectives that he talked about if ever after that horrendous conflict Oh yeah, he was a army ranger, lerp, uh, just uh amazing military career and he was just, you know, same for me. I was just born to do the job I'm doing and he was just born to um, you know, be a combat soldier in Vietnam, you know, one of the worst wars ever in our uh, American history. So, he always just instilled in me all those ranger principles. I mean, to this day of just Rogers Rangers, you know, his rules of just even the simple things of going into a structure, like say a restaurant or whatever, a concert hall and making a conscious effort, never don't go the same way. Don't leave the same way you came in. But you know, just that that's on the wave tips on just the surface level, but the whole, their whole lifestyle and a way of training and mindset really set that that sunk deep into me as a kid. And it still carries with me of, you know, the everything else, hard work, waking up early, never calling in sick. I mean, he, uh, as much partying as he did, you know, he's been, he's been sober for almost, you know, like 30 years too. Uh, uh, he, he squared away his act, thankfully, but, uh, as much as partying as he did, he'd wake up, you know, super, super early at the crack of dawn and, uh, and get to work and do a great job and took a lot of pride in what he did. So excellent role model of what not to do and what to do at the same time, you know, that uh, dichotomy as uh, Jocko likes to talk about all the time. So, but yeah, he, uh, he inspired me in a lot of ways and still does his perseverance of, of uh, how he operates and how he, how he deals with people. Uh, I was just talking to someone about, he had, um, he always had a wide berth of friends that he, um, that he can call on. So, I grew up observing him and he had friends from all over the spectrum, you know, a pastor, uh, a priest, uh, mafia associates, hell's angels, like from A to Z of all characters, all walks of life in New York city, where you, you touch upon so much of, so much of a diverse group of people. And, um, he, uh, inspired, not inspired, but just, that's how I dealt with life too. I've, friends that, um, you know, like in my profession, like having a friend that's a journalist is, uh, like what you have friends that work for the LA times. And, you know, it's like, it's like saying, yeah, you're friends with Satan, 
right now. <laughs> and but if yeah, I've had friends, you know, people have done time that have uh, rehabilitated themselves, you know, musicians, um, yeah, guys on the other side of the law. I mean, just all spectrums, and um, I, that's my real wealth in life. Like I don't have a lot of possessions and a huge bank account, but my my true value, I think, in life, if I had to like put it in monetary things, my my friendships and deep bonds that have people that I could help and they help me at the same time. So that's um that's what I learned through him of kind of being that ambassador and building bridges between people. I like when we were talking offline about, you know, trying to get certain people on a podcast, I'm really good with, you know, bringing people and merging them together. And, and, and then at the same time, when there's conflict between people of, uh, of being that true peace officer of keeping the peace and, um, you know, just quelling disputes internally, whether it's family members or, you know, friends at the workplace or off duty of, you know, really bonding people together and bringing them together. That's when I like, if I had a superpower, it's probably that. Yeah. That was funny because we were talking about that with um, a lot of the people that we've both found ourselves around. You know, now you have social media, you so you can literally see, oh, this person knows these people and this person knows these people. And, you know, we were talking about the similar circles and these are very unrelated people from all over the place but they're all good people and that's the common denominator and i'm sure even the people that you you talk about some of them that found themselves on the wrong side of the law may still be inherently good people they just maybe not walking the same straight path as others yeah i mean there's a lot of people out i know at work i would never associate with that are horrible people and then there's people yeah that did time and yeah, I mean, I don't agree with that past, but, you know, I agree with 90% of what they're doing. So you can't judge a person, you know, by the rank of title. Um, there was a guy I knew, uh, very famous true crime author and, 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 and fiction too, guy named Edward Bunker. He was uh, a prolific uh, novelist and he was, um, he did a lot of like bit parts. He was in Reservoir Dogs and a couple other cool movies and he did a lot of uh, technical advising for um movie heat for one a lot of people know and um so we formed a we formed a bond and uh he he's one of his um he said he sent me a letter and uh see if i can quote it right said not all the good guys are good and not all the bad guys are bad but only the good ones could tell the difference and i thought that was thought it was brilliant so i i try to you know learn from everyone you know don't discount anyone you could learn from the best you could learn from the worst and, um, yeah, just don't judge anybody on one particular opinion. Okay. You're this, you're Republican, you're a Democrat, you're this, you're CrossFit, you're vegan, you're not vegan, whatever it is, just be open, listen. And, um, if it's a, it's a good thing to disagree because you may, may agree down the road, but at least have you had that conversation, you know, again, planting those seeds. I might not agree with you now, but down the road is like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. James was right about that. I should, uh, I should do X, Y, Z. And, um, that's, it's a, it's healthy. It's healthy to hear the other side, uh, of the coin. And, um, it's boring. I think otherwise to so just you know, sit around with the same people that agree with everything that you do. I don't know. I just, that's how I always felt. It was like, well, oh. I'm like, now I try to go into a conversation where I change my mind, please, you know, tell me what, what am I doing wrong? When, or let me hear your opinion and see what my blind spots are. So I think a lot of people go into conversations of trying to put forth their opinion. It's like, no, I want to hear your opinion and see where maybe I'm wrong. I'm more than likely I am. But, uh, you know, I think that's that's where we should 
go into more of a, into society of learn, being open to learning and saying that if you did have an opinion at one time, like say last year, and now your opinions changed, like, like, like in politics, um, you know, you hear, oh, this guy's flip flopped. Like, well, if you, if he came to the conclusion that he was wrong, what's saying, what's wrong with saying, yeah, I was wrong back then, but now I'm right. Or I think I'm right. I changed my opinion. But it's like, now it's like frowned upon where, you know, if you say you, yo, you had a different opinion, you know, two years ago, what happened now? You're just placating us. So I grew. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happened. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So no, it's crazy. It's like, you know, peeling one layer of an onion and running around saying, I know everything about the onion. No, yeah. you just took, you know, they, they didn't get vaccinated. That doesn't make, that's not the whole person. That's one tiny little sliver at that moment on that day that that's how they felt. And you guys are tearing yourselves apart because of this one little layer of the onion. Whereas the core of the onion may be, I'm scared. I'm worried about my family's, you know, safety. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm worried about losing my job because I'm a firefighter or a cop and they're telling me, you know what I mean? That's the core that we all agree with. None of us want to lose our jobs. None of us want to feel unsafe or die, you know? But the minutia that I see flying around that people are ready to kill each other over yes. is an epic distraction of the core where most people agree on most things. Yes, yes. I think, yeah, you touch upon uh, like fear. I mean, it's like, seem seems like it's like, two feelings, love and fear. And then it's just modulates in between there. So like trying to identify a certain stance, like where is this coming from? Is it coming from a place of love or is it coming from a place of fear or anger? Like try to identify those, tag it with that and then, and then take a step back and like, okay, so if I'm, I am in fear of something, let me understand it more. Let me try to explore it, learn as much as I can, and then try to make, reevaluate your opinion on it from that instead of just emotionally attaching it to it and then pressing, you know, putting your foot on the gas. So I think that's, that's changed my mentality a lot in the last couple of years, like really taking, um, you know, we talk about like mindfulness and just being mindful of whatever decision I'm about to make. So if I'm about to, I feel this urge, whatever it is to eat something or, you know, um, reach out to somebody or whatever, or engage in some kind of action, take a step back. I'm like, okay, what am I, what am I doing this for? Do I really need this food? Like, or am I just bored or am I doing this activity just for the sake of it? You know, whether it's, you know, going online or what have you, you know, name the activity and then is this, and then going the next step and saying, how am I, how is this going to affect my life tomorrow? You know, how's it going to affect it next week? and or whatever year and then when i take that step back and evaluate that i could really um i could really make a sound judgment even if it's just a a 10 second thought that we could really change the shift of what i'm doing at the time and it's more than likely it's for the better yeah absolutely just taking time even last night i i'm six weeks deep no alcohol now and we went out and it was Halloween and it was at a bar. And, you know, you met my uh, bonus boy. He was playing and everyone yes. around us is drinking. And it's exactly like you said. I've been doing meditation every day and it's really shut down my monkey mind a lot, incredibly well. I'm sitting there like, no, nah, I'm absolutely fine. If I stop and think about it, especially weighing up tomorrow morning, you're going to be groggy. You know, I, I get migraines sometimes. So that's a trigger for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do I want to risk that? And I was like, no, I mean, absolutely not. But before you walk through a door of a bar, you're like, what do you want to drink? You're not even stopping to think, do I even want to drink? So it's been kind of interesting unwrapping my own 
habitual drinking. I've, I've always said this has never been binge drinking. I hate being drunk, but it was just habitual. Oh, I'm having a restaurant. I'm going to drink wine. I'm in a bar. I'm going to get a, a beer, you know, and taking a step back and going, why do I feel like I need to be altered in this place? Is, is a great question and then you're like so in that case do I even need to be in this place because you take alcohol out of it do I want to stand in the middle of a bar not really so as you said now you've got more hours in the day and you start finding yourself doing more interesting things whether it's just engaging over a coffee or a dinner instead of a, a drink or you know even going to see a film or something that's again not involving taking being present away by alcohol, by marijuana, by whatever, you know, insert negative coping mechanism here. Right. Yeah. I mean, even looking at the, you know, like the chemical components of whatever you're ingesting, like, you know, alcohol is a depressant. So when you look at that depressant, so I'm taking something that's going to depress me. So we just look at it from that. It was now I haven't done it in, in quite some time. Like, wow, I'm taking something that's depressing me. And if you, if you went into a bar or restaurant, so it said, uh, uh, what kind of uh, uh, fluid could I give you that's going to make you depressed? You're like, what? You know, but that's really what they're asking you. And so when you have that label of like, wow, I'm taking something that's going to make me depressed. Who wants to do that? But we readily do it uh, left and right. And it's accepted within our culture. So, I mean, that's, it's, it's really insane when you, when you look at it from that perspective. So, yeah, that, that like ranger mentality of, you know, stronger, faster, you know, when you kind of look at that through that lens of like, all right, what am I going to do? Is this going to make me smarter, faster, stronger? Like, okay, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have, uh, I'm not going to have that meal. I'm not going to associate with that person. I'm not going to do this activity. So that's not my goal anymore. You know, it's going to be, um, longevity. It's going to be resilience. You know, we were talking about family. We have, family members that made it to 104 and deep into the 90s like I want to do that but I know that's statistically in our profession that's not the road it's going to be so how could I mitigate those factors of collecting that pension check for a long long time and having a good healthy healthy life with my family absolutely well speaking of that then let's let's kind of walk through your law enforcement journey because I know you've got like myself you've got a a uh, bi-coastal career <laughs> if that's the right description so you're in new york tell me about your you know your first opportunity and then kind of walk me through your first few years like you know your your level of preparation that you felt you had yeah we had like a career add you know bouncing around to different agencies yep. right <laughs> yeah we could definitely relate and then moving to uh just moving to a new land i mean you came from the uk over here so was that like 3,000 miles? Right? Something like that. It was a long swim. Yeah. <laughs> so same thing from New York to LA coming out in uh, 96, 3,000 miles where um, I just had, uh, was lucky enough, one of my best friends, my drummer, uh, heard that um, that they were recruiting out in LAPD. So I always had a fascination with the West Coast, again, through music. So music and then, uh, you know, the crime, crime element out here is post-riot. So that was wild to see. Like, wow, the riots. I mean, you know, Rodney King and then O.J. Simpson, all these um, real, real conflict-driven things were happening in the police department. So, again, always driven to that, you know, that chaotic scene. And I said, hey, let's, uh, let's do it. Let's go out there. Came out here to test at a great out-of-town testing where you could bang out everything like four or five days. So, I did that. And then first beach I came into was like Zuma Beach. 
So I'm in Malibu and I'm swimming. Um, probably it was like the winter time. As you know, couldn't swim in New York City in the winter time, and then a couple of do- dolphins pop up in the ocean. I was like, I was like, wow, this is something else. This is the place. So, always had a really interesting. Um, always followed uh, LAPD through various books that came out. You know, Chief Gates's book and all different elements of um, through their their history. So, always had a a tight formation of what this what drove the city. So. Um, came out here in 96 and then um, first precinct or division, we call them divisions or stations that I worked was a uh, Hollywood division. And it was kind of akin to what I was used to in New York city. It was, um, it was kind of like times square, 42nd street, just um, uh, open drug dealing and prostitution, um, just convicts and parolees everywhere. So it was, it was like being being a new rookie policeman. It was like a kid in the candy store. So was that Hollywood Boulevard area then? Yeah. Yeah, because I, I was, I think when I went to California the first time, I think it was like, God, when was it? 90, it was with my uh, girlfriend at the time. So I think like 97, 98. Yep. And I remember, firstly, the, the bus driver was a complete a-hole. <laughs> um, but secondly, you know, you go to the boulevard and you buy, you know, a man's Chinese theater and you think it's going to be, like the pictures and everything and you know three blocks back you're like man this is a shithole kindergartens with razor wire everywhere and you're like right. so yeah there's, there's a and then obviously i lived in burbank which is where the studios are so um yeah the thing just like um like a lot of places even in new york um central park west versus you know further north um it's amazing how many good areas are surrounded by really really bad areas in many cities in the u.s yeah, it's amazing, right? It's uh, from uh, you know millionaires to people that don't have a you know pot to piss in, as they say. But uh, yeah, being a rookie, it was like a plethora of of crime to delve into and to learn. So it was a great breeding ground where you could you know go to say uh, Brad Pitt's house on a on a radio call and then uh, talk to someone Brad shit on the other side, you know, <laughs> it's just uh, throwing feces at tourists on the street. I mean, just, you know, incredible uh, multi-layered environment. So that's where I got to um, get exposed to LA crime and then uh, piqued my interest of uh, working with um, partner who uh, became a technical advisor for uh, Michael Mann great guy it was a um a marine recon force recon guy named bob deemer and uh he exposed me to uh took me under his wing as a mentor and exposed me to a lot of um prison gang culture and uh the narcotic side of the streets so that really embedded into my um D- police dna of what i wanted to go after i was like okay i could definitely do this and this is my path so through the years of um Working um, the uniform side, my goal was to get to the detective side of the house and work uh, prison gangs and um, developing kind of like the intelligence side of the house. So I ended up working a unit called CRASH. It was an acronym for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums. So that was the LAPD's element of uh, battling, battling gangs. So... Um, it would, it, it became, it kind of became infamous. If, um, you remember in LAPD history, there was an individual named Rafael Perez that was kind of the basis for the movie training day. And he tarnished the image 
uh, erroneously through the press of what Crash was about, and it became like a scandal within um, LAPD, and then and then just fed off into the Hollywood scene. Like I think the the show uh, The Shield uh, was based on that, but. 99% of the guys were doing great things. And of course, in every element, wherever you go in humanity, you're going to have that slice of, um, of life that's going to tarnish it and, you know, and then make it hard on the rest of us. So we were talking about before of, uh, paying for the sins of, uh, the few, the, the many pay for the sins of the few. So that's how it always is in law enforcement, or I guess in society where government has that wide brush and just, you know, everyone gets whacked with uh whacked with it even though they didn't deserve it or not so yeah survived survived that whole uh whole thing in going through the the ringer where they tore apart crash and what was that sorry just to interrupt what was that wasn't it something scandal like began with the r rampart scandal yeah is that what it was yeah okay i, th- I want to say garrett to slow who has the squad room podcast i think he had Rafael Perez on his show oh, and wow. they had a really really bad connection so it was really really kind of tinny okay um but yeah he actually interviewed him so you talked about um you know Mike Dowd and coming through the other side I think he actually had him on his show which is kind of an interesting yeah, perspective yeah well I'd love to hear that because yeah he hasn't really um he maintained a real low profile um where he ended up um there's some footage on YouTube of him being a limo driver for Harvey Weinstein of all people <laughs> oh, so it's like birds of a feather right <laughs> oh, he hasn't changed okay interesting you know? yeah i don't know if he had any idea what was going on yeah who knows yeah yeah um but uh yeah so that was a tumultuous time for the department going through the rampart scandal and then i came that push forward uh, a federal consent decree where uh, DOJ came in, for those that don't know, and pretty much put a new standard operating procedures forced upon uh, the department by the federal government, which lasted till, I want to say, like from the early 2000s to, um, to 2009 or something, where former NYPD police commissioner uh, Bill Bratton took the reins of the police department and righted the ship and got us out from within the consent decree. But... Just to uh, rewind a little bit, so after working um, after working gangs and uh, a couple of other units I was involved in, I had some matters with um, family matters that drew me back to New York in 2000, and um, so I had a joined NYPD in 2000 pre September 11th. I think it was September September of 2000. And uh, had to become a rookie all over again, which is a I can relate <laughs> humbling experience, right? Yes, you got to bite your tongue a lot, right? It was like you know, just be the gray man again, try to be humble, but then you know, trying to use your knowledge in the right way at the right times. All that shouting though starts becoming comical because yeah. when you've been through it two or three, four times, you're just like, okay, dude, I get it. Yes, the yeah. yes, there's, there's people hanging out the windows. Yeah, hurry up, move that ladder. But yeah, it. it when when you when you've been a rookie like two or three times, that facade then just you know like you said you're just going through the motions by that point. The first time you're wide eyed you know recruit and you have no idea, but then even different departments it's the same act and then you're just like okay, let me just get through this. <laughs> Man, I mean yeah, going through multiple academies is not fun. <laughs> I mean, it's it it's looking back at it was you know it was fun at certain times, but man. It's Groundhog Day. Yes. And like you said, it's biting time, especially when 
you know, there's there's so many good people in fire and I'm sure police academies and, you know, recruit academies, but there's also the ones that are terrible and you're biting your tongue as someone's fumble fucking their way, showing you how you're supposed to be doing it in your mind. You're like, that's not even right, but I'm not going to say anything. And you can see through the facade and mm-hmm. they're telling war stories, but you know, they're not there. No, you know? exactly. Yeah. yeah you could it, suss that out real quick yes. and everyone else you're like, Hmm. <laughs> yep. Should I let them in on the secret? You know, <laughs> But yeah, I ended up having a really good law instructor, uh, Jimmy Smith, and his um, he became my FTO uh, during, I worked the 17th Precinct, Midtown Manhattan. Like during your academy time, they let you go out for a month uh, to get a taste of what's going on out there. Like usually it coincides with like the holiday season, so it supplements the police department's presence um, out in the streets. So we ended up working the 17th Precinct together, and unfortunately- um, in during nine 11, his wife, uh, was working in Manhattan at the 13th precinct and which real close proximity to the towers. And he lost, uh, lost his wife, Maura Smith, just a beautiful, beautiful woman. And it was great to hear, to be in that radio car with him and to, um, they had a really good relationship, which is so, and it seems like it's really rare in a police department where like, oh my goddamn wife is doing this. And there's always guys bitching about their wife or family. And it's, it's not that it could be a toxic environment for sure in a police department. It was, but it was so good to hear his relationship with his wife. He really loved her and talked a lot about her fondly. And then man, when, it, you know, I found out that his wife died and, um, and, uh, yeah, I really, that really hit me hard, uh, because I had that, that deep connection with him in the academy and then just hearing about his, his, uh, relationship with his wife and how inspiring it was that, that uh, was, that uh, was rough. Uh, same thing with, uh, I had my brief time in college, uh, I had, um, had a student, a fellow student named Steve Driscoll who died in the towers. He was an emergency service unit in the NYPD, which is like the equivalent to SWAT. And he would come into class. I would always pick his brain because I knew, you know, I knew he was a cop and he was just super energetic and, um, uh, very optimistic and very, very engaged with the job in a good way. And, uh, which I really admired because again, uh, the policeman could be a glum lot of guys bitching nonstop about how they can't wait to retire and everything. And, uh, Steve was, seemed like the opposite. So when he went down in the towers, man, that, that really struck that really, that was tough. Was, I was like, man, this guy was everything I would want to be and to have that, that attitude. So man, yeah, you just, um, you just don't know as even uh, just to, as a, as a cop or just human being, like how many people are really listening and watching you and you don't even have to, you're someone's mentor without even saying, Oh, I'm, I'm a James, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm assigned to you. Yeah. That's not even what a mentor is about. Just that leading by example of just, of just doing, doing the right thing. People are watching and listening, even if you don't think they are. So be, be aware of that and then be proud of that for all those guys that are doing the right thing. Um, just know that there's people, people, uh, you're having that effect, which is a beautiful thing if, in a positive way. So those are definitely two people when I was in my, my tenure in New York, really, really, uh, enjoyed to be around and I had a lasting effect to this day. So that was, um, that was really tough to go through, you know, going back to New York. But I think if I was in LA, it would have killed me of not to be there and be a part of the the process there. So, when the towers came down, I was in upstate New York up in the Catskills, 
where I had some family living at the time. And then after that, once we obviously left, uh, left upstate, went back to work, then, um, the next, that night, it, uh, it was like a continuous journey of, I want to say like eight months to eight to eight to 12 months. It was down there. It's, it was a blur where it's funny how talking about memory, uh, before off mic of trying to remember things. And it was like a black hole looking back at it now of what we, what we did down there and the various different roles of, you know, rescue recovery, evidence collection, and, uh, only connecting with guys from the past from NYPD guys and talking about stories like, Hey, you remember this, you did that. Or remember when this happened? Like, wow, I, I, I do now that you bring it up, but I blacked all that out. So those, those, those times in New York was just kind of like a blur. I mean, it's, it changed me. It changed the city changed for me. That's why I ended up coming back to LAPD once everything subsided. And, um, but I was super grateful to be there and to work amongst amazing individuals that did some, some such admirable work. Same thing, working shoulder to shoulder with the fire department guys. Oh my God. I mean, just tremendous individuals. I mean, and we were all one for a while for a couple of months anyway. And then it, <laughs> then it got chaotic. We start fighting each other. Literally. I think there was a, not too many people know it. it was like a riot down at ground zero. The fire department was protesting where, um, the mayor at the time, Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani started, wanted to change the, the deployment. And, uh, you know, everything comes down to money and what have you over time and all that. And, um, so the fire department was, um, came down to, you know, demonstrate at ground zero. So, you know, a couple of barricades got thrown punches and, Chiefs got, you know, badges and shields ripped off their uh, chest and people don't really know about it. But it I've was, never heard of this. It was crazy. <laughs> I mean, it was all out like WWF Battle Royale, <laughs> you know, octagon style. Um, man, some crazy feelings and emotions were swirling well, down exactly. there for so I mean, many exhausted times. exhausted by that point as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, you know, sleep deprivation is a big theme, you know, in your book and, and your podcast. And all that. And, oh, my God. Looking back at it. If I had my, had my aura ring on, if I had an aura ring back there, like my score would have been in the negative. It was so horrible. Mm -hmm. Now with, um, with 9-11, obviously I've had a lot of people on with so many different perspectives and it's so powerful. And I think that's what's so important is, you know, I had one that was a Coast Guard member and that's you know, hardly ever mentioned the mass, mass evacuation that was done, you know, um, aquatically if that's the right word you know from all the merchant vessels and the the um, military vessels and i think they took I, f I forget now i think it was something crazy like a million something like that people off manhattan just via via boat so imagine the incredible you know mission that was um but uh you know another thing i think that I saw people talking about romantically recently and has already been forgotten is the kind of the, the 912 philosophy. Yes. So what did you see as far as the kindness and compassion and, and unity, if anything, um, you know, post attack? Oh man, it was, um, it was beautiful in so many different regards. I mean, it's such, such a swirl of emotions of, you know, of, um, the very few bodies that we found or body parts and, and you know bones and and identifying material so you'd have like the worst of scenarios but then when you mentioned i just i forgot about the aquatic portion to it i remember 
it was like one to two days I was detailed out to um, the ferries. There's a lot of ferries that go to and from like Staten Island and New Jersey from Manhattan. And we uh, escorted a lot of those, and uh, which was weird. I'm like, I'm a cop, and now I'm on a ferry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is this about? And uh, But you'd have you know complete strangers coming up to you and hugging you. And I'm like, wow, like never got hugged by a stranger before. And especially in uniform, usually it's a different type of hug. It's a bear hug and we're, you know, taking someone to the ground. So that, that emotion that New York has had was such a alien feeling. Usually we're at each other's throats, you know, honking and screaming at each other. But for a couple of months, wow, it was, it was something else, especially on the criminal side where crime plummeted. Um, you know, Sebastian Younger, you know, um, was he on your podcast? Sebastian? Yeah, a couple of times. Right. Yeah, I love okay. that guy. Yeah, Tribe. Like you said, it should be mandatory reading in everyone's uh, bookshelf at home. You know, he talks about how even in World War II and in post-September 11th, like mental illness, you know, the people getting involuntarily taken to psychiatric hospitals and crime and everything plummeted because everyone had a purpose. We, we all had a mission together. And which I would have loved to have seen during a pandemic. It lasted a few, very few um, brief, days. Yeah, <laughs> days was it? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we'd have criminal, hardcore criminals I knew in the street that would see us, and uh, you'd, they'd walk up to you like, "Hey, man, I just wanted to say, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing?" And just you know, or respect, props, and hardcore guys we knew, you know, we locked up or had beef with, and um, it was gone, decimated. And uh, they would come to the you know precinct, these guys, and uh, you know bring stuff, shake hands, you know, give you the, just even a nod of hey, you know, of of just appreciate. You just knew a heartfelt moments. Which man, I mean, if you can get a cop and a hardcore criminal to uh, to hug, wow, that's that's hard to do. And um, so that was that was a big thing, just on the on the street level. But the humanity wise was. Uh, was ridiculous coming in remember we'd be we get shoulder in from brooklyn my precinct in bushwick and going up the west side highway which is adjacent to ground zero and everyone would have there would be uh, groups of people on corners uh with uh, big posters that said you know you know respect and everything you know encouraging all the first responders so after working like 16 hour days and being shuttled in, you're just, you're just completely exhausted mentally and physically. But then I'd see that out here and people as we're getting closer to ground zero and you're, Hey, you know, people clapping and, and screaming like, wow, look at that. I mean, you get that surge of adrenaline and, and just completely boost your morale. You sit up straight and you're like, all right, we're here. This is what we're here to do. This is the mission. And man, that really, that charged the battery. So like I can never thank those people enough of uh, the impact that they had. And then even like the little kids, we would have breaks um, at, they would just set up like little, uh, little places to eat out of like, you know, the remaining hotels and structures, even on uh, ferry boats, where you did set up cots and uh, litters and all that, where you could take a snooze and all that. And it would have all this, you know, kids from around the nation where I guess we're sending stuff, I don't know how it got to us, but sending stuff down to ground zero, all the, like these uh, photographs or drawings and little sayings. And um, I, I wish I kept some of those things. I, I got a picture of one. It's kind of cool. It's uh, <laughs> like the Twin Towers or like building like um, uh, 
with uh, planes going into the towers and it was like i'm sorry all your friends died and it's kind of like <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of macabre but it's funny you know dark sense of humor in the police world yes but the kids are so honest and brutally honest innocent and innocent they don't mm-hmm. know there's no filter in it and it's the beauty of it but you'd see all these things you know i i, I you know I, ho- I hope you kill all you know all your enemies and you know just the funniest things that kids write and then you'd sit there during break and uh while you're getting some chow or whatever and you're you know filtering through all these uh, posters and all that like oh this is awesome just kids from around the world and uh sending in these things from their you know from the schools and all that so that really that really uh it really boosted morale too. So I was like, I'd love to meet one of these kids. Like, you know, especially now in the job, I mean, 20 years later, you know, working with a lot of these kids now and, you know, nine 11, they're in, you know, kindergarten or whatever. So I'm like, wow, it's, it's something else to live, um, to see the world through their eyes and pick their brain. And that there was some of the kids that were writing these letters and, you know, having those discussions in school, what it meant to them. So, incredible incredible time period to live through so that's the citizens of america man i can forever in a debt for getting us through those times get a um, kind of get emotional talking about it now but uh well yeah forever in a debt that's all i could say well i mean again thank you for sharing that because it's it's just so powerful to hear all these different perspectives because i mean each set of eyeballs gets a completely different look i mean even the pulse um you know massacre that we had here I had, you know, two of my friends that were the transport unit that were shuttling people to the hospital. I had um, another friend who is was one of the first people in the stack that killed yes. the, the, the terrorist. Um, I had Joseph Ibrahim, a doctor who was a trauma doc on you know, at ORMC that was treating them. I had the LT of the station right across the street from Pulse. And so all their perspectives are completely different. And some of them even thought that the other one wasn't doing what they should have done. And when you put them all together, they're like, ah, now I get it, you know, but to hear the perspectives from inside the towers, like Jules and uh, Gédéon Naudet, the, the two French brothers that made the right. documentary, they came on, um, you know, just so many different, but I think that retelling these stories reframes what's going on right now. Like now we're having firefighters and police officers being called selfish and all this stuff because they're not getting a vaccine. You know, when you calibrate that, whatever your philosophy on, on you know, immunization the way that we're treating, the way that we're sending our officers now to enforce some of these ridiculous, you know, lockdowns and mandates that we've seen, um, I, f- I feel like we couldn't be further from what you just talked about. And I think that we as a nation, as a world, need to refine that, you know, need to get back to that humanity and that core, as we said. I think everyone's running around holding a piece of onion skin thinking they've got, you know, everything's figured out. Right. And, you know, I think the we have been divided so much and not getting political, but I think the last two people that stood at the helm have done a fucking awful job and they haven't unified the country, which is what 9-11 did, as tragic as it was, but it's been divided now. And, and I think that I hear this all the time. I miss 9-12 is a real thing. It's not just a t-shirt or a sticker. That's when humanity came together and obviously it was a, you know, a, a US specific attack, but I saw it. You know, I was in Japan at the time when the towers hit. I can remember it clearly. Um, And it really did bring everyone together. And so I wish there was a way of kind of control, alt, delete to get everyone's mind back there and then look at the last few years through that lens and, you know, ask ourselves how far have we swayed from that north that we were given on the compass to where we are today? And how do we find our way back to there? 
That's the magic question. How do we find our way back? Leadership. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Every every problem, right, is a leadership problem when you really look at it. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to some specific areas, but before we do, just kind of walk me through what brought you back to LAPD. Yeah. So my wife at the time, I'm divorced a few years now. We uh, took care of some family members that were uh, her sole surviving, like her grandparents that kind of almost raised her. So um, they unfortunately both died, great people. And um, so we started looking, coming back. Like when, once you leave a town, you kind of realize when you come, if you do come back, why you left it and then what you had before. So I was like coming back to New York, especially after September 11th, just the new, the soul changed for me of the city, you know, it shifted. It wasn't my New York, which, you know, that's perfectly fine. You know, you're not meant to be where you grow up sometimes and just had enough. Again, I just kind of realized of, uh, why I left and uh, so we switched gears and then went back to went back to LA. And at the time, a lot of people were leaving. You know, when I left uh, for other reasons, you know, like post uh, post Rampart scandal. So once that subsided, and we got um, Chief Bratton, William Bratton, who was both NYPD and LAPD, like myself, and they started encouraging guys to come back with uh, with tr- like travel bonuses, so to re- or relocation bonuses. So got a nice financial incentive to come back and they had like a brief one month kind of a reacclimation academy which was really smooth and so when i came back it was like i never left before come back with the seniority everything was intact and i ended up going back to my one of my old um stations was uh which was hollywood and it's funny how the police department is you know it's kind of transient where people jump assignments every couple of years two three years and so when I came back, some, some people I didn't know me intimately didn't know that I'd left to go to NYPD. They were like, "Oh yeah, oh you, you know, um, you know." As I was having a conversation with them, they they thought I was still was still working, and I had no idea. They just thought I was at another station or whatever. I'm like, "No, I was, went back to New York." And uh, so, you know, people treated me like I never even left. It was it was funny. So it was uh, um, actually I met, I was just working the other day with a guy on paper who's supposed to be like my field training officer. When you had to come back, they, you, you started from, you know, started from where you left, but on paper anyway, you had to go through like a little probationary period of six months and he was supposed to be writing like they call, uh, they call it rating. And so like every day you work, you're supposed to, they're supposed to, uh, P3 call police officer three was supposed to write a rain about you if what you did right what you did wrong that type of thing and i think he did it like for one day i remember telling him and then after that he's like what the hell am i writing this for you <laughs> you're just you're not a freaking p1 uh, which is you know rookie probationary officer i was like i know bro i was like you know just uh it's, you know it's what you got to do whatever and then i said i'll, I'll i said i'll write him just sign him for me he's like yeah whatever he's like fine so i started doing it for a month and uh and then no one was, the sergeant wasn't checking on it. it was just to show you, like, you know, people didn't think I left. They didn't even know I was in this program. So I was going into this book and I'm writing up these ratings on myself, which are going nowhere. And then after a month, I'm like, why am I doing this? No one's even checking up on me. So I went through, somehow I went through the whole six month program and no one even knew about it, any of the sergeants or the captain. And then I just, and then it just, I was reacclimated. <laughs> so it was a, it was a really smooth transition. And then, as uh, when I came back, my goal was to make detective, or that was always my goal. 
And uh, so I ended up working a good array of assignments, going into working vice, uh, picked up, uh, got promoted and went to, uh, it's called uh, Pacific Division and uh, worked uh, like street level vice problems. So pimps, uh, you know, gambling issues, uh, bar issues, all the typical duties working undercover as a vice operator. And then from there, uh, I'm trying to think, this is way back now, I'm thinking, adding up the years in my head, ended up going to um, uh, picking up a detective around like, say it was like 2009 or so, and uh, working, getting sent to a division called uh, West, West LA Division, super slow. It's kind of it was where the um, OJ Simpson homicide happened. So very affluent area, which I wasn't used to working in, in New York, working in the ghetto and working in LA of all affluent area and completely different crimes and mentality. And I, I didn't last long. I was like, <laughs> I got to get out of this place as soon as possible. And luckily a friend of mine, uh, handed me a landline. Oh, what should I say? Land, yeah, it was kind of a landmine thinking back at it, working like a, like an SVU type of unit where we work in all sexual abuse cases, sexual and physical abuse cases, uh, just for juveniles, which was one of the most emotional, draining, taxing assignments I've ever had. Just, you know, talking to, you know, teenage girls about getting sexually abused by family members or, you know, people within their household was just, oh my gosh, it was horrendous dealing with that. And then dealing with the criminal justice system of, trying to prosecute those cases and having such a huge burden to climb uh, a mountain to climb as far as trying to present a case and getting a, a filing on it and bringing it to court, which the DA's office just had a, a ridiculous criteria to make that happen. And then to explain to a victim and or that victim's family of, okay, thank you for coming forward and telling us about this crime, which is a huge, you know, huge thing to do for a kid and a family and then explaining to them how we can't prosecute the person that their their uncle or whoever it was, a cousin that lived in their household and like kind of almost re-victimizing them again due to the legal system of, well, this is the, you know, the preponderance of evidence that they need to bring forth a case. And luckily I did have a lot of good convictions, but it was far more cases where we couldn't give justice to the victim. And man, I just, it just tore me apart. It was, it was horrendous. So I had to get out of there quick. I was like, I, I'm not built for this. I learned real quick. I was like, wow, this is, um, this is really tearing me up inside to do. And, uh, it just wasn't getting any, um, just wasn't getting any satisfaction from it. And so God bless the people that are there day in, day out dealing with those crimes and uh, dealing with the victims and putting some good cases together. I mean, hats off to them is, uh, it was, um, definitely one of the toughest assignments, but the squad that I worked with was some fabulous dedicated detectives. And I learned so much from them of how to interview, how to really interview a victim, which is really hard. Or just how to, how to talk to a kid about a crime, which is, it's a completely different dynamic than talking to an adult. Now, what was the, um, what were the barriers? Cause it's, it's, it's such a, I can see how it's such a, a hard area to navigate. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, one guest on here, Greg Kelly, who was a Texas high school football star 
who the, there was a Netflix documentary called Outcry, and uh, he was falsely accused of molesting a child in the house that he was staying in. Mm. Horrible policing. I mean, if you listen, if you listen to his story and or watch the documentary, epic, epic failure where they just made the decision it was him because the kid, the kid had said his name. Right. But actually, when they didn't even investigate the other adolescent in the home who ended up doing it and while he was walking free and greg was in prison he was out raping other people and this horrendous but conversely so many people have come on here have had abuse as a child you know many of whom was sexual so talk to me about the the challenges when when there is an outcry made and you're investigating it and it seems to be a genuine thing what are the barriers to conviction well we've seen it a lot through this you know the me too movement of Victims coming forward, you know, whatever, 10 years, five years later, and what, what kind of evidence do you have? So that's a lot of these cases, kids going through, uh, going through therapy or showing, showing signs and symptoms of some kind of abuse and the school system or a parent being cognizant of that and then, and then finding out what happened. So you have, you know, you know essentially a classic, you know, he said, she said thing. So in the, in the criminal justice realm in L.A. and I'm sure other places, it's for them, um, they, they're motivated by conviction rate. So they don't want to take chances on cases um, where they want slam dunks. So when you're dealing with these cases, it's, it's, it's hard to get a slam dunk. So what they would either need is a confession from the perpetrator or some type of evidence. So now you're dealing with a sex crime that happened, you know, five years ago, there's not going to be any biological evidence. So now are there, you know, letters, a journal, uh, what have you, you know, very few and far between. A lot of it was uh, pretext phone calls we would try to get them to do where you'd um, have the victim, you know, call the perpetrator and then, you know, kind of um, bring up the conversation of what happened and, you know, and then uh, I wouldn't say steer the conversation, but, you know, just create the environment where maybe they made some listening, they, they um, made some kind of uh, confession or talked about the crime or, you know, bolstered the, the story somewhat of validating some of the details. And then you present that to the DA. But those are, I mean, it's really hard to get that. I mean, you know, to get a confession on anything is very tough. But then you're talking about a such an intimate and dark and secret crime that, you know, everyday people engage in you know, supposedly upstanding citizens with no criminal history and are committing some of the most horrific acts. And to get someone to talk about that and, and interrogation is really tough. So huge mountain to climb, you know, in, a, in the legal sense. So, so many of these crimes go unprosecuted. I mean, most of the people don't even talk about them, let alone trying to get into uh, the criminal justice realm. So huge hurdles and very frustrating. Now, what so, were you seeing as the the common denominator of the convictions that you did have as far as, you know, was there any, were there any common threads of the kind of person that, or the kind of background that a person had that would prey on a child? It seemed like, you know, the abuser was abused at one time. That was a definitely underlying uh, theme where the same thing happened to them. And then uh, culturally, a lot of it was accepted um, dealing with, um, you know, different countries of origin where having sexual relations with someone that was uh, underage wasn't frowned upon. And in our society here and in the U S it's just, that's a no, no, but uh, 
in other places, some people would tolerate that. Um, so dealing with a lot of different cultures in, in, in our culture, which, uh, you know, could create a chaotic situation. So that was like, that was probably two of the biggest themes that I dealt with where it's, oh, just the norm to, uh, mess around with underage girls and then, and then peeling that onion, that layer back and then seeing that they were abused at one time. So you try to get some of those, elicit some of those statements and then use that as like a bonding technique and then peel back and get that person to open up and then try to drill down some of these details and, and validate some of the things that your victim said and, you know, try to lay that foundation where you can get a successful prosecution. Yeah. No, I mean, so that must have been, you know, draining not only the the outcries of the kids and, you know, obviously genuine you know, cries for help for people that have been abused, but also trying to navigate the false allegations as well. And, you know, because I saw that even working on a summer camp and sadly the, the, the guy that I'm talking about, Ty, has passed away and I don't know what happened to him. I just found, looking for him years later, found his obituary, but he was just, he'd, he'd worked on inner city camps before and was just very militant with these children. The camp I worked at was a very affluent um, you know, the kids that came were from very affluent families and some of them had mates at home. So they didn't want to clean. They didn't want to, you know, scrub the toilets. Well, that's what you did at the camp. You know, we all mucked in and we kept our cabins clean. And this one kid falsely accused Ty of, of hitting him. And I was able to finally get the kid to admit that he was lying, but he was just angry at, at Ty. And, it, you know, you know you're, you're guilty till proven innocent when a child makes an outcry like that. And even though it wasn't sexual, it was still abuse. So, you know, I got to see that side of it as well. So I can imagine yes. emotionally, like, you know, that, that kind of tug of war between is this child telling the truth and, you know, or am I protecting, you know, someone who's actually innocent that's being falsely accused? That must have been pretty uh, emotionally um, taxing, to say the least. Oh, definitely. I mean, as a detective, I mean, your job is not to put people into jail. It's to just gather, gather information. You're just a intel collector, you know, which I did, you know, before just working gangs and working narcotics. You just gather information, gather intelligence, and you see where it takes you. I mean, you, you have to be unbiased. So it's to, if it's to disprove a crime, great. If it's to prove a crime, great. But you're there just as a neutral party to elicit information and then see where it gets to the truth and matter, as they say. Um, that's one of the mantras and that's, that's all we are just trying to find the truth and, um, either disprove or prove or, and if it doesn't get you anywhere, you just, you know, detach and, uh, don't become emotionally involved in the case. And sometimes it goes unsolved, but you can't try to, so many people try to put that, you know, square peg in a round hole. And I just never had that, that approach to it. So it's each person, it's what our country is built upon is you are, you're innocent until proven guilty and that's the way it should be and that's the beauty of it but it's really yeah it's tough when it comes to all these you know sexual claims of whatever it is it's the political realm a workplace you know at home yeah it's a real touchy subject so but i, I really empathize with uh that whole movement of you know people talk about oh why is this woman coming 20 years later 30 years later because this guy's um you know this guy's you know 
becoming a judge or whatever, whatever the thing is that's uh, getting people fired up. I'm like, hey, I mean, unless it's happened to you, I mean, or have you heard it, you know, just people have different ways of resolving these issues. And, you know, it manifests itself in different ways and memories and things like, like I was talking about with 9-11, things I've forgotten buried. And then you bring it back through conversation and you're like, okay, yeah, I sh- maybe I should do something about that. Maybe I should seek help or maybe I should speak out against this person, whoever did this deed. So I just try to come from a place of non-judgment and just uh, be open to information and people's feelings. Yeah. Well, I've had people on the show that it was one, I forget who it was now, but one of my guests very recently said they were, I want to say it was a, he said it was a smell, I think, if I've got that right, well into his, you know, I think it was like 40s. Mm. And all of a sudden it triggered a memory. And I think he went to counseling and they explored it. And he actually remembered being molested by, I think it was his grandfather, if I, if I remember rightly. I might have that mixed up. But, but yeah, so you get these stories of these trap doors suddenly flying open 10, 20, 30 years later by... Um, you know, whether it's a moment, um, someone was telling me recently of, uh, of a small child sitting on her lap and she suddenly flashed back to being molested by a babysitter and mm. that, you know, child in the lap kind of re- flipped its way around when she was the child on the person's lap, you know, so I hear it all the time. And the problem is, like you said, whether it's a law enforcement, whether it's, you know, I mean, autism or claiming disability or whatever we see the abusers we see the dipshit in the lifted truck leaping out of their handicap space you know right. and skipping across the fucking store you have no business having a handicap sticker you're not you know not, at least not parking right by the store when elderly people are having to shuffle their way from the back of the you know an autism there's the, obviously a very very strong spectrum of autism and then there's really shitty parenting you know what I mean? Right. You know, so so that we always have that that one slice of the pie that, that abuses it. And I'm sure some of the Me Too are absolute bullshit. They're just jumping on a bandwagon. But that ruins it for everyone else who truly is trying to reach out and say, something happened to me. But that cry wolf element that we always seem to kind of focus on is is, you know, so so responsible for the true victims being disregarded because of all the noise that they made. Right. I mean, it's like in our community of, uh, you know, those outliers like a, like a Mike Dowd or whatever, Rafael Perez, and then it tarnishes everyone else. And they just point to that, which is uh, just very unfair. But I, I, for the female side, it didn't realize until, you know, when all this stuff was coming out, like how many females, uh, victimized, you know, uh, sexually, I I think it would be easily like if you have discussions with close females within uh, the workplace or at at home in the family, I think it's like three, I would say easily three and five women have some kind of, they've been victimized. And if you talk to men, I think maybe one in a hundred or something. I mean, we kind of that have that luxury of walking through life where that probably will never happen to us or we'll be able to fend that off. And uh, women just don't have that opportunity. And I mean, that's, you know, half the population, of uh, possibly being victims. I mean, it's, it's crazy when you look at the numbers of whether it's in childhood or as they go on in life of being in weird positions with men, man, we have such a talk about, um, you know, not even a privilege, just the luxury of, of uh, walking through life, not even having that enter into our ecosystem of, you know, mindset. You know, we're thinking about, you know, 
you know, with, with street fights or whatever, or being in, you know, robbery type situation, going to convenience store, it's stuff we could handle. But those other things that women have to deal with, wow, I mean, what a burden to deal with. Well, I think there's more men than we realize. And that's what I've, yeah. I mean, and it's kind of a, you know, a kind of echo chamber in a way, but I've just been amazed how many people in the uniform professions have had a pretty significant level of trauma and many of whom that's sexual. And I think, you know, that they, there's an element of seeking this role partly to kind of fill the void with the adrenaline element and partly to be the protector because you were the victim. So I was, you know, 530 episodes in, I was amazed how many people had that. So, you know, I wonder now if we actually could see inside the mind of men, how that number would actually be much, much greater, but we just don't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not accepted for men to come forward and talk about that for the females. It's, you know, it's uh it's more expected but yeah that that's true that's true it's numbers definitely would be a lot higher yeah now with with you working with the gangs with prostitution um I, you know i don't even there's an element of the sexual assault on children because of broken families from there as well one thing i always love to ask anyone I mean, anyone in general really but especially in law enforcement my my perspective is this as a firefighter paramedic I've got to see behind the curtain of the ripple effect of drug prohibition in this country specifically, because I never worked as a fireman in, in the UK. And so I've seen, you know, the, the gang violence, I've seen the overdoses, the prostitution, the homelessness, all that. Um, my family moved to Portugal about 20 years ago. And people listening have heard this story lots of times, and I apologize. But um, <laughs> long story short, they decriminalized addiction in 2000. Right. And they went from the highest level of addiction in, I'm not sure if it's Europe or the world, but definitely Europe to the lowest by basically taking addicts and putting them into a medical route instead of a criminal route. They still come down, you know, hard on, on smugglers, on dealers. But if you're an addict caught with a user's amount, you go through addiction counseling, mental health counseling, job creation, and that's all voluntary as well. But what they saw is you take away that stigma, that fear of being incarcerated, a lot of the addicts then sought help. Mm-hmm. Here, we drive all our mental health illness people into the underworld and we empower the cartels and the pimps and the dealers and everyone else. With the lens that you've had, New York and LA, um, what is your perspective of the impact of the illicit drug trade on the overall crime in this country and and you know what is your if you have any at all kind of philosophy on maybe not taking addiction and using it as a as a crime right well i think i think it what i've been thinking is you know look look at you know assessing how what we're doing and how what kind of effect we're having right so we're we're incarcerating all these people and um what's as a policeman, you could, you know, you're arresting people you could see at a very young age and then as, as, you know, doing it for 25, 26 years now, seeing where they end up now. So, so we're sticking these people into, you know, cages and is that going to make someone better? Is that going to, are they going to come out better? So for what I've seen is no, it's, it's a, it's an animal factory like uh, Eddie Bunker talked about in his book. We're just, you know, you're just 
putting in so in a shattered individual more than likely yeah there are some apex predators just people that are born evil but for the most part from what i've seen is just people that had tormented uh, childhoods and they're just a victim of a uh, victim of the society and the family that they're born into and they just uh, became who they are going through the you know the criminal justice system so whether it's drugs or any other crime is sticking someone in a box the right thing to do and from what history i've seen the limited amount of history is no so what do we do are we, we going to continue the process of um of doing that a punitive in a punitive fashion or are we going to get real and say hey if we're putting someone away let's make them productive let's give them the tools they can so of course they are going to get out unless they're committing murder for the most part these people are going to come out so what type of people do you want to come out do you want an animal to come out or do you want a productive citizen so i think we got to get real about what what a prison really is what a jail is what a mental institute is and how we how are we going to change that and we what models are we going to look at whether it's europe or canada or whatever um let's not get stuck in that same process of uh, insanity of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting you know different results so the drug thing how that plays into it is let's let's find out why why do we have such um so many people addicted to drugs what's driving that behavior i mean and that is something as as a policeman we're just not responsible for it i mean it goes way back into you know productive society of of a solid family solid family home good schools good education and a healthy environment where you're living you know is the the where people are growing up is that a healthy society where they have access to clean water, good, you know, good food system, uh, positive activities, and a lot of it's known in the main in the major cities. So, I'm, you know, you have to go back from step one and see how how are we creating these societies and looking at America right now. If I had to give it a report card, I mean, I'd give it an F. I mean, our school systems I know in the major cities are just completely like you were talking about going through LA and that some of the schools look like uh, penitentiaries with razor wire and all that. It's like, so where we, where you, you, yeah, you're founding someone's beginning steps. It looks like a prison. Like, how is that healthy? I mean, that's horrible. Overcrowding, what have you. So we got to, I mean, you really got to tear the system apart of what, what are we feeding? When you're talking about that as, um, I have a friend in Paris and what they feed their kids in school and what we feed our kids. I mean, growing up in the New York City public schools, I mean, we're having pizza and just garbage. And then you're expecting that kid to be healthy and have a good mindset when you're putting garbage in, you're going to get garbage out as opposed to over in Europe where they're using real utensils, uh, real linen, having a real structured environment to, to sit down and and decompress and and teach a child how to be with other kids and have have a real healthy food and and mindset i mean that's that does wonders for someone at a very young age and we're getting the exact opposite and then when we're talking about autism and is it lazy parenting and so lazy parenting equals you know going to the doctor i think oh i think he has adhd now prescribing the medication and you know we're just saddling these kids for for uh, not not for a successful outcome from what I could see at the very beginning. And then those are the kids that are being shoved into my workplace. And now we're, we're stuck we're from A and then I'm like at Z. 
So what do I do, get to do? I get to put them in jail. And then what comes from there? I mean, that's just the end of the road. I mean, there's very few people that I've encountered that rehabilitated themselves, whether it's through drugs and alcohol or a life of crime. I mean, very few people make it through that, through that net, I think, which is unfortunate. So like I said, whether it's, you know, drugs, alcohol, they're, they're just part of the tools that are just, you know, decimating our society. And when it comes through, when it comes to like decriminalizations of drugs, I'm like, all right, let's give it a shot. I mean, what we were doing before, uh, has it worked? Let's see how this is. And we're in the process of that now. It's pretty new in the last, you know, decade or so within the States of seeing how this decriminalization goes. And it's tough to judge because we're still in those beginning phases. We, you know, this is something like 50 years down the road, we'll have a better look at where this is going to lead us. You know, we're still in those, that tumultuous phase. But it could be a step in the right direction. Maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm right. Um, but, you know, you, you need to have a change. You need to stir stir the pot and see where this goes. But the, then on the other hand, what I think is by decriminalization, are we, you know, signing off on, oh, it's okay to do drugs. And as we discussed before, I think, you know, for me anyway, a straight edge lifestyle is the way to go of not burdening people with, with uh, depressants. And that's all drugs are. It's, I don't think there's anything out there that's really going to enhance your life. It'll make you feel good at the moment, but in the long term. So by saddling Americans with, you know, pushing them towards it's okay to do drugs. Is that the right thing? So I kind of, the way I view life now through the lens is this, again, goes back to, is this going to make me stronger? Is it going to make me smarter? Is it going to make me faster? So I see, it seems like a lot more people are open to doing drugs now that weren't before where they had that that barometer of who maybe I, if I do this I'm going to get you know arrested and I deterred a lot of people and now it, maybe it's not and are we going to have more people relying on drugs to get through situations and it seems like during a pandemic you know overdoses went through the roof you know suicides mental illness just just skyrocketed so I don't know if that has some of it to go into play and um, but. Yeah, I mean, America's definitely, we're in a shift, cultural shift with that, and we'll see where this plays out. So, hmm, you know, we, we shall see. Yeah. Well, uh, I think, so I'm kind of conflicted on both sides. Well, I think everyone in law enforcement is, and that's why I love asking the question, because, you know, we need to we need to hear. Some have been vehemently no, some are, you know, very progressive. Um, not you know, not saying that, the um, you know torn both ways isn't progressive but you know some people have really taken a deep dive in um but you know i think that when you decriminalize all like portuguese did um they're not promoting drugs at all they're they're taking them to the mental health and counseling thing so they're trying right. to to give them the tools to overcome their addiction so i don't know about the actual legalization element but it's you know neither of those two are they you know having them for sale in a pharmacy um but i think the yeah the underlying element whether it's alcohol which is obviously the elephant in the room i mean alcoholism is rife in this country right. and it's legal and it shouldn't be illegal. I mean, that's how the drug prohibition came on the, the tail end of the epic failure of the alcohol prohibition. You know, we know Al Capone for one reason and one reason only because we empowered a shitbag with that too. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the goal is absolutely the, the mental health element. I mean, I think that's, that's behind so much, behind the hyper-triggered element of what's going on now with the vaccines and, you know, defund the police and all this other stuff is people are just 
frazzled mentally, social media, all these things. So if we're not addressing the mental health element, we're not going to get people off social media, alcohol, drugs, you know, whatever your vice of choice is. So I agree. I mean, I think it is conflict. But what I've seen is when you talk about it, people focus on the piecemeal, which is, oh, well, we've legalized marijuana. That's not decriminalization of drugs. We're talking about all addicts, meth, heroin, whatever, none of which is available to purchase. But you can come out of the shadows and now go and, and get treatment for these things. And if you can't kick it, at least go to a safe injection site where a doctor or a nurse will give you a medical grade of your substance mm-hmm. and you're watched and therefore you don't die in a gutter somewhere having a sheet pulled over you by someone like me, you know, or process the body of someone like you. Yeah, make so those it, notifications to the family. Yes, which is fucking heartbreaking. So the ripple effect I see, and then you think about gangs. We talked earlier about kids growing up and having, you know, that one role model and take away the ability to sell illicit drugs. What have you got? I mean, you've, you've, you've taken a power away from that. You've taken away power from the cartels. And not all, but a huge amount. Mm-hmm. You know, the Afghanistan, I hear my veterans talking about that's funding terrorism. You know, it's, it's funding some of these groups like Al-Qaeda. So to me, you know, it's, it's such an embedded problem. But if we can actually have the balls, to st- like Portugal did, to say the buck stops here and we're going to start doing this. I mean, they only did nine years, talk about 50 And then you look at Norway, their prison system, how they truly rehabilitate people. Those prisoners live in houses and they work and they cook and they clean and they educate themselves. And when they walk out, as you said, they will one day move back to you. They are, you know, a much, much better version of themselves. And their recidivism rate is minute. Finland, the way they do schools, they look at the kid holistically as a whole child. Mm -hmm. And that includes exercise and time off and shorter, you know, learning days and um, you know, they're, they're basically number one in the whole world. So we very arrogantly beat our chest and say we're the greatest nation in the world. But what the fuck have we done to deserve that title? Firstly, it's not a competition. And secondly, no, we're not <laughs> in many, many areas. Right. But if the best countries in the world are the ones that have the humility to learn from each other and raise all those countries up at the same time. Yes. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that. Yeah, it's... um. When you, yeah, when you really look at the scorecard of how we're doing, it's, we got a long way to go. Is it great here? Absolutely. But man, we doing so many different things wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful country. That's why, you know, it's funny because, you know, occasionally I'll get people like, kind of implying, well, if you don't like it, go home. It's like, well, or you could look at it another way. If you love it, you put the work in and you question things. Yes. That's what happens when you love your country. I love the UK. I love here. You know, I consider myself, you know, part of, well, this whole planet in general but you know you go home that means you're giving up yes you know so no you stand the fuck where you're standing and you you demand change absolutely so absolutely and yeah through podcasts and information sharing and and reaching out to other sources of media and listening to the other opinions where you could change that opinion and and then uh, set the tides you know set set your sails to a different direction and be a part of the solution so Mm -hmm. you know all that type of all these type of activities yeah. spur that so you are making a difference and you are being part of the solution so hats off to you for that well and i think that you know, what what well, it's a hard sell but when you flip it around the other way as well you look at our law enforcement everyone's like oh they you know they're so threatening they're wearing all this body armor and everything well we've created an environment where it is a war zone I and mean, how many officers are executed every week at the moment you know so look at prisons 
the prison guards are also prisoners in those prisons. They don't see daylight for 12 hours at a time. You know, they're watching their back thinking they're going to get shanked. You know, so by making the streets safer, we're actually improving the lives of law enforcement. I would love to see two to a car around the country. The fact that we have one and we're so surprised that people have to draw lethal, you know, force. Yeah. Have you seen how big humans can be? (laughs) They're a shitload bigger than me, most of them. So, you know, there's, there's so many things I think we could do if we freed up the, the court system and law enforcement and made the people less dangerous. And that's what you don't see. Everything's put on the shoulders of law enforcement. We blame them for every mistake they make. We're telling them to go enforce mandates and lockdowns. But, you know, who's telling society that we need to get better too? You know, I think that's yes. the part of the conversation that no one is fucking having. I think a lot of it's like, do you do like vengeance, vengeance and uh, yeah, revenge based emotional uh, thinking of you did wrong. So I'm, I'm going to drop the hammer on you instead of, oh, you did wrong. Let me try to teach you. Let me try to show you the way of how you went wrong. And that's, that's how our society's, uh, here is built. You say something wrong. All right, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to jail you. You know, I'm going to beat you. It's just very emotionally based thinking and decision making, and which could be sat- very satisfying at the moment. But again, the long term, we look at the big picture. It's that's not healthy. No. It's you know, are you going to hit your kid or are you going to take the time to show him how he went wrong? And it's the same thing of uh, you know a neighbor or someone else in the community that does wrong. It's like yeah, they have to. They have to, you know, pay the price, but what kind of price are they going to pay? And how are they, how are you going to be, be a better person for it? And how are they going to be a better person for it? So, yeah, we really have to take a look at that mm-hmm. of, um, how we, how we operate as a society and, and be, you know, find out what the roots of that were from, you know, 10, 20 years ago, whatever. And then how to correct that and just, again, accept, Hey, we did, we were doing it wrong and that's okay. That's the information we were going on. And, now we're going to change. We're going to change our course. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think two two lenses. Firstly, understanding that other countries don't live like us. Like you don't, you know, you look at policing in Norway or Iceland or some places like that, who are also inhabited by human beings just like us, and they're not murdering their police officers, and their police officers aren't walking around, you know, looking like they're about to go to war, you know. So there's that, and then the other thing is just we were all kindergartners once and not one of us thought about being a gangbanger one day or a prostitute or homeless you know or suicidal so we were born these little blank canvases and it's the environment that shaped us yes there are anomalies where our brain chemistry may be off genetically but those are 0.00 whatever the rest of us are products of our environment nature and nurture so you know, we can create an incredibly positive, kind and compassionate community, but we have to reverse engineer. And that involves people not making a shitload of money off us. Right. Because compassion and kindness is free, but division and war and the war on drugs and all these things are people are making a fuckload of money off the blood of Americans, British, Australians, you name the country. And I think that's what we need as citizens is to, like you said, reverse engineer to the nucleus where it goes back to what most of us believe in, whatever our chosen religious doctrines are, which is kindness, compassion, love, and then go forward from there, you know? Absolutely. I mean, if you just look at it on like a socioeconomic level, it's like, you know, America's just a war machine. Like 
you know, our defense industry, you know, when you look at the roots of it, like back from World War II, and then what we manufacture now, it's like we manufacture very little, but we're, you know, but then we're like the number one manufacturers of, of war machines for, for the world. Like, how is that a good thing? Like, um, when we seize firearms, uh, they get melted down. They, they don't get repopulated into the community. And if we did, if we just, whatever we seized and if we like sold back or whatever, or somehow made a profit from firearms, oh my God, that, you know, politicians and everyone else would be up in arms. But we do, as a nation, we get away with that. We're the, you know, one of the number one arms dealers for the world. So it's like, <laughs> if I did that on a municipal level, I'm the bad guy, but we do it on the national level and it's accepted. Like how, how is that? How is that healthy? Let's let's go back to real manufacturing. What what really built this country? You know, real products, especially during the pandemic. We saw that we weren't even couldn't even we weren't even capable of making having medical supplies for us. So yeah. That's the real infrastructure of a healthy nation. Is like good schools, um, good uh, power grids. You know, st- uh, streets, farms. highways, farms. Yeah, um, security. I mean, all these things are severely lacking. So America has to get back to the fundamentals, the basics. Everything everything goes back to the fundamentals. And as you know, in martial arts and your craft, whatever you choose is, you know, experts, someone that's mastered the basics. So America, get back to the basics. What made this country great? It wasn't it wasn't going to war with people. It was it was um it was building people up and and um being a proud nation with uh from from compassion and empathy for oneself and building from that absolutely yeah i think that if i'm not mistaken i think we make up four percent of the world's population and i think we consume 75 percent of the world's painkillers mm, opiates yes. so you know there are some very skewed <laughs> statistics when you look at our happiness and health and you know again i think i've spat this statistic out a lot but i believe we are 70 percent overweight or obese in this country so I think Churchill once said something, I'm paraphrasing, but you can, you can measure the greatness of a nation by the health of its people. Mm. So let that sink in too. Yeah. Or whenever they do like those happiness polls, whenever you hear, you know, the happiest place to live, you know, you always hear, yeah, it's like, like a Sweden or a Denmark mm-hmm. or Norway type of country. And like, wow, we're like number 30 or something like that. Why, why is that? If you truly are number one, how do you, how are you at the bottom yeah. of uh, happiness? Yeah. And that doesn't mean not great people. That's the thing. Everyone gets kind of like triggered by that. It's like, you know, you, you have to go to the core. What do, how do we get back to being really good at feeding our people with healthy, clean food, encouraging exercise, you know, teaching kids to be curious, you know, inspiring them at schools, not breaking them down with these bloody standardized tests that eight-year-olds have to sit in front of a computer for four hours to take just Mm. so they can justify a budget of a local school it's not about them learning at all i mean there's so many areas that we just went back to what they did a hundred years ago basically we would smash (laughs) 70 percent of the problems just with that yes but the good part is you can teach an old dog new tricks as evidenced uh, by us of you know readapting to a to a different lifestyle and and that being contagious by you know being that example being that leader and p- people feeding off of that seeing that through the good aspects of social media of you know when uh, when you announced you know, a couple of weeks ago that you're getting off the drink and everything and, and you know people people see that 
and it, it, it lays the seeds. It, it's, uh, it's very inspiring. So if you, you pick your outlets correctly and surround yourself with, you know, very positive people that are successful, you'll, you'll get people to, you know, turn that ship around. So that's, I think that's one of man's best qualities is that redemption. And that, you know, he could self-correct as opposed to other animals who just have that one track mind. We could, we could tap into that, that prefrontal cortex and ignore that lizard brain that a monkey mind and, uh, and get back, back onto what we're, what we're here to do is, you know, prosper and survive and persevere and be resilient. So whatever, whoever's listening to this, that's in those dark, deep places, you, you know, just takes that one step that one day of saying, all right, let me try one day of not drinking. Let me try one day of exercise. All right. I haven't cracked open a book since I was a kid. Let me read one chapter and man, that could, that could do wonders. That one day leads to 10 days, leads to a year, leads to the rest of your life. So it can happen. <laughs> it can happen. There's many examples of it out there. Same thing with people in prison. You know, you're in there now, it's temporary, but you could change it when you get out. It's a, it's not a lifetime. It's, a, you know, it's your choice. So that's why I try to when I'm out there in the streets, just try to reach out to people and just, you know, try to just plant those seeds by whether you're doing it or you, you know, people see it or you're doing it, you're telling them, being proactive about it, you know, getting involved with, uh, you know, kids programs and, you know, just, um, having the opportunity to talk to people in the streets that are on that, 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 that lifestyle. And, um, just, you know, even if they're resistant, just trying to be open and, uh, have that two way conversation, same thing with people in the press. It's just, you know, it's, uh, goes back to those, that fear and fear and love, you know, just that fear comes from not understanding. And so if you take that time to try to, you know, give that open view to someone and maybe they can understand you a little bit better by a five minute conversation, take that time. And that does wonders. Beautiful. Absolutely. All right. Well, I wanted to touch on one more area before we go to some closing questions. Um, the, one upside, I think, of this last year and a half is there have been some amazing documentaries. And one of them was about that very bizarre murder, suicide, whatever it ended up being at the Cecil Hotel. And I know that you were the detective on that case. So No, no, I definitely wasn't. Oh, you weren't? Okay. So, no. so, so I know you were, you were um, commenting on it then. Yes. So, so talk to me then about, um, you know, what you know about that case and, you know, because, I mean, it, it, the documentary definitely didn't wrap it up. It still seemed like a mystery. So just kind of your perspective on that. Sure. Yeah, I just got to do a little precursor on that. There was uh, some controversy with some other guys that were involved on that case. You know, when it comes to police work, there's always egos involved. And No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, actually, I wanted to ask you before we were off on mic, like how the podcast, how, um, how did your guys at work, um, feel about that? Cause I know, you know, within our community, if someone starts shining in a certain way, you get some blowback on that. Like, Oh, who, you know, were there people like, Oh, who's James? Uh, does he think he's a star? Is he like some, uh, he's going to be some big podcast. Uh, you know, it's like, who's he think he is Joe Rogan. He's going here and hobnobbing with that. And that, did you get any aspects of that? Uh, and that filter through was, was it seems like there's the opposite like people saying oh wow you're doing some great work and then there's people that will take that uh as like a little have some animosity to that see i'm not aware of any but it's amazing how 
I'm sure things that are said are never said to my face. Mm. But I am very acutely aware of that phrase, the prophets never received in their own land. Mm. So whether it's Paul Combs, whether, I mean, you know, all these... These people that are very well known and respected in the fire service, a lot of times they're not received well in their own department. And I think it is egos. You know, if you're ultimately just coming from a place where you're trying to do good, and certainly in my, this that, you know, that I've, cre- I've created, the people that I bring on, you know, I'm trying to shake the tree. Because right. if you leave the tree where it is, we get the same shit over and over again. So I'm sure I've ruffled feathers, but I really couldn't care less because anyone who's worth a damn would come tell me if there was an issue you know and and as wayne dyer once said what people think of me is none of my business and i love that love that expression as long as i feel like i'm on the right mission and i'm you know bringing on great people and having good conversations that are of value to people the beautiful thing about podcasts is you can listen or you cannot listen so it's it's entirely up to the audience whether they choose to participate or not Yes, yes, I, I love that. I'm, I'm glad that you didn't hear anything negative about it because you're doing some great things for the community. But yeah, I've noticed that people that get a little limelight within the police department is people that love to tear them down. I mean, it's a small number, but it still is. And I, I hate seeing people tear each other down, you know, build them up, don't tear them down. So when this documentary um, kicked off, there were some, uh, some people that it, it ruffled some feathers. Thankfully, not on my end. Be, um, but there are some people involved in it that were speaking from a place or is perceived and, or, yeah, no, it's warranted that they weren't involved in the case, but they were speaking like they were. And, um, that definitely soured a lot of people's within the police department. Like just some, the actual investigators, like the guys that actually investigated the case, uh, some friends of mine. And, um, it's weird when you get, get approached with these documentaries, like the politics behind or the things that, that drive it. It was a friend of mine that was uh, actually featured on the show. Her name is Kim Cooper and her husband, Richard, they have a great um, company in downtown LA that does specializes in like the history of the underbelly of LA. So when the producers hit them up, they said, Hey, do you happen to know any policemen that work the area? They're like, yeah, I'm a good friend, Nako. And uh, so when they hit me up, um, uh, as a favor to them, I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do anything for you, Kim. This has been great to their, their, their people, her and her husband have been great to me. And I like what they're doing of highlighting LA in the right, right way of, you know, talking about the problems it's had, but, you know, being truthful about it. So I said, yeah, I'll sit down and talk to whoever you want. So just, it was a small crew and, uh, in a hotel that was kind of like the Cecil, like it passed its down on its luck type of, uh, SRO type of place where he made, so many arrests through the years. And um, I thought it'd be like a documentary, maybe a few thousand punters would see it. Maybe it would never even get made because, you know, being in the law enforcement profession, especially in the social media age, so many people hit you up to do things, you know, scripts or what have you. And I just try to always be of service if you need help, I'm there and I'll try to help out. But most of these things never come to fruition. It's like a miracle to get an actual product on the screen. So that said, like six months, a year later, I find out it gets sold to Netflix and I'm like, wow, I'm like, well, it's Netflix. I had no idea it was going to be, uh, it was going to go into that direction. And then, uh, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard got where the producers on it. And I was like, oh my God, this is going to be huge. And I'm thinking, what did I say? I don't even remember what the hell I was talking about <laughs> so long ago. And then how am I going to look? Is this, how is this going to be perceived? You know? And, um, thankfully, on my part, uh, it came out, I think, really well, but I gauge that from 
my community would say, like I said, we tear each other apart and, um, it's definitely not a good thing when someone shines within our, it goes outside the lane, but all the feedback I got from people I know and people I didn't even know that, you know, just knew me on the periphery and, and that reached out to me and they said, wow, you really did a great job and spoke well and, you know, shined a, shined a light now to our profession in, in a good way. So I was like, whew, that was a, a sigh of relief. But there were some people that, um, involved in a project that it didn't, uh, didn't go as well. It was daggers for them, which is unfortunate, but I, I can only be responsible for myself. I had nothing to do with the other people that were involved. And I thought it was just going to be just me as the, the one person speaking about the case. And I just spoke, I told them from the get go, Hey, I'm not, wasn't a detective on it. These are the guys hit them up. I can only speak about what I, what I knew at the hotel and my experiences in the area. So I, on the, if people haven't seen it, I was kind of like, um, almost like the color commentator on the, on the documentary. It was on three episodes out of four. So I just spoke about the area and what I thought about, you know, my views on females and victims and what Skid Row area was in downtown Los Angeles is my experiences about it. So my case, my, my view of the case was just from like everyone else. I just, from knowing what the, the lead investigator, Greg, uh, told me about it when it was going on and what I read in the press and what I kind of knew on the periphery. So, um, really unfortunate incident of going back to, you know, um, mental breakdowns and being medicated and how things go wrong and how victims get victimized, uh, females get victimized and being in foreign lands in a chaotic, tumultuous, non-permissive environment. And you had all these recipes for disaster and we're kind of like pre-programmed through society of what the outcome is usually going to be. And that's kind of like the whole point of the of the, the documentaries where we see A plus B equals C and then therefore it has to be D. And in this case, it wasn't. So you had to like, um, keep an open mind as an investigator for all the guys that did uh, the investigation on this great, great crew, great, very experienced homicide investigators. But then when you had that outcome presented to the public, they, they were looking for what we're preconditioned to. It's like, well, it was, this girl had to be a victim of a crime. Someone had to perpetrate this, uh, perpetrate a crime and it didn't make sense to them. So it's like, how do you debunk that? And then you come up with a dissatisfied public audience that just doesn't accept that answer. So therefore it has to be a conspiracy because now everything's a conspiracy. No one as a, you know, I'll, society has been built through politicians and government and built on a lot of things that built on lies. We're just preconceived to it. No, we're being fed BS. And in this, this case it wasn't. So how do we deal with uh, a public that doesn't, doesn't uh, accept what we're saying? They that erosion of trust in government, which is, it's horrible to see, you know, I think it came about maybe probably, you know, in the Vietnam era of uh, Nixon administration for us is just, all the whole conspiracy thing, JFK and everything else, the, the roots of the erosion of government, I think it went back to that. You can see the genesis of where things started going wrong in this country. So I think the documentary was interesting where it, you could see it through the scope of these people that were thinking that uh, Elisa Lam was murdered. She was the one that, long story short, she uh, was visiting Los Angeles from Canada and she had a history of uh, mental episodes. She was taking medication, 
comes to LA, stops taking a medication, and ends up ultimately having an ex- accidental death that from um, the average person thinks it would have to be a crime, and it wasn't a crime. And this is why, and they go through all the the steps, and then they touch upon all the people that were, all the conspiracy theorists that kind of pointed the finger at the wrong person, and how that cancel culture came into play of you know, pointing the finger and then tearing someone down erroneously and, and what, what that does to a person. So it had a lot of uh, interesting lessons of, you know, how to ingest information, how to um, not make assumptions and jump to conclusions, putting yourself into someone else's shoes and having empathy and compassion, kind of all the things that we, I think we touched upon during the podcast. So I think people have a, you know, they'll, uh, they'll enjoy the thing if they take it as a lesson, whether it's, Looking at mental mental uh, mental health, seeing certain behavior patterns where, in the documentary, they show um, the victim Lisa would ended up uh, being a victim of her own hand, acting in a way where you know looks like she was on drugs or someone was doing something to her, and then maybe someone will walk away with those things, saying, "Oh no, this person wasn't. Uh, she's going through a mental decompensation." So. A lot of people reached out to me for that saying, wow, I didn't know this. I didn't know that. And they could just, their, their lens changed a little bit. So I think documentaries are great for that. Not to exploit people's deaths or exploit the, a neighborhood or whatever or a profession, but to, to a true documentary, you come out of it learning something. And I think, I think they did a good job with that of, of, of teaching, teaching us of how to look at things differently, uh, whether it's a criminal investigation or it's um, someone's mental health. So I think the, you know, if I could say so, they, the producers did a really good job with that. So give it a look on Netflix, uh, crime scene vanishing at the Cecil hotel. So it satisfies a lot of things. If you're into the true crime thing, the macabre and what have you, or the humanity aspect, that's, that's what I liked about it is, um, you know, how you could change someone for the better. And I think there's definitely some good lessons within that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was interesting you know, because I mean, there were some some elements that were, you know, hard to understand. But it's funny; you just flashed me back to uh, a call I had a long time ago, and it looked like a murder. This person was stabbed multiple times, and they're lying dead in this hotel room. Um, and actually, what it ended up being was a mental health episode. They stabbed themselves to death. Mm-hmm. So, to the average person, you're like, but that doesn't compute. I don't understand. What do you mean they stabbed you? Because you can't understand that mindset. But yeah, when when someone is so mentally altered, you know, I know one of my friends went to one who was having stomach pains and he basically eviscerated himself, there we go, (laughs) Um, and pulled all of his intestines out because he was, his stomach was hurting so much. Does that make sense to anyone? No. But I mean, again, you and I see the way that some people act that doesn't make sense to anyone else because they're used to that nice little, you know, Hollywood movie with the ending with, with the bow on the top, you know? Right. So, but sometimes that's not the way it happens. There's no justice. It doesn't make any sense, you know? So yeah, I mean, I, I, that's what I found. I think you were left with questions, but that's a healthy thing. Right. Exactly. Explore. Yeah. You know, think of, wow, how did I end up to this conclusion? And it wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Did you watch Don't Fuck With Cats? Yes. That was a good one. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That was crazy. And I think Tiger King 2 is coming out, which is kind of an irony because they're bookending 
this pandemic that was like the first thing i think everyone did when this first lockdown was watch tiger king i don't know why but I, that- yeah I, yeah for some reason that, that didn't appeal to me and you know, maybe i get kind of give it a, a viewing but uh yeah i was like so many people watching i was like all right i don't want to hear about it know about it. i'm just mm. going on to something else it was a train wreck but it's one of those things you couldn't stop watching but, yeah it seems like yeah what's the uh, what's the latest one um Something the Korean one, suicide or something. Oh like? yeah, um, I couldn't get into the Squid Game. Squid Game, yeah, yeah, I couldn't get into that personally. I tried watching because everyone was raving about it, and uh, if you don't grab me in the first ten minutes, I'm kind of monkey brain with that. I got you know, so but yeah, yeah I like mean, gotta, it seems to have got people there. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, try not to judge it, but then you know, just hearing from the outset what what exactly it's about, and um, I just kind of try to be mindful of what I'm ingesting, you know, video, video wise, audio wise, mm-hmm. you know, peep social lies and see, yeah, sometimes it just have to deal with work. You just need a completely different opposite realm or something more factually based instead of some fantasy thing that uh, seems negative, but you know. Now, what's your perspective on like violent films, especially you know, like slasher mutilation films? Because for me, I, I was into them when I was, I had this very bizarre, I, I don't know if it was even two years where I got well into all those slasher films. I was going to the video shop and, you know, getting them all the time. And then I literally remember as a, God, what was I then, 17 year old kid going, what the fuck am I doing <laughs> being entertained by people being tortured? Fast forward, you know, in almost like 10 years, I became a firefighter, saw all that stuff, you know, for real over and over and over and over again. And so now you look at, you know, Grand Theft Auto, you look at, look at these slasher films, even the latest Halloween film where he's mutilating firefighters with their own tools and stuff. And <laughs> can you go take a step back? I've just had a hard day at the office. I just want to wind down and watch a cabin full of teenagers brutally murdered and tortured. Mm. To me, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I was there. I, like I said, right. I was that teenager consuming that. What is your perspective of those films, again, with all the horrific stuff that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, looking at it now, it definitely wasn't healthy. But at the, I remember my mom, you know, like taking like a mental health day where, you know, like, hey, I'm taking off sick today. And uh, do you want to go to school? Of course, the answer is no. Like, no. <laughs> All right, let's go to the movies. You know, seeing so you need a break from work. And I remember going to the Texas, seeing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> I was like, you know, looking back at it now, I was like, wow, I don't know if that was the best thing to do. But <laughs> man, did I li- love those, uh, those, those grind, grindhouse films back in, back in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. And uh, yeah, my habits definitely have changed. But um, I do love, you know, like military history and, you know, combat type films. So I really like all those documentaries and films that are based on that. I don't, I don't know if that's maybe the healthiest thing, but I think there's a lot of lessons. I think if you can get a good lesson from it, it's worthy. You know, if it's something like a Halloween, which I did see was remember as a kid loving a Halloween series and that, that latest one was rubbish. I mean, but it was interesting to see uh, some firemen getting, uh, brutalized was it's always the police department yes exactly. I'm like, wow, wow someone uh <laughs> these guys are getting a getting a slice uh, mm-hmm. literally on that that was interesting but yeah i mean i think you just got to maintain that balance i think it's fine every now and then but you got to watch out you have to really see what you're ingesting and uh surrounding yourself with i think once in a while it's not a bad thing but i think if you saturate your mind with that it's definitely going to manifest itself and not the best way absolutely you know same same for it's like anything else you digest you just got to really have that balance mm-hmm. 
But 100%. When I was a kid, I mean, yeah. What's better than a Friday the 13th or Halloween movie? Man, I mean, unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, switching then to the closing questions. Um, while we're on the movies, I'll stick with that first. And so what are some of the movies that you love to recommend and or documentaries? Documentaries, especially as when we're talking about the, the formation of a nation, I would tell people to check out Oliver Stone did a brilliant series called The Untold History of the United States of America. And he did a companion book too. And I know Oliver Stone's a very, um, very uh, electrifying individual where people have really harsh opinions on him. But I think if you delve deep into why he creates these uh, projects, it comes from a, a really good place. His, um, his uh, autobiography that he did in the last year or so, uh, I think it's like walking into the light or something with the the light, but just look up Oliver Stone's autobiography. Unbelievable. His, his approach to humanity and his approach to war, just so many packed with some really good lessons. So when he was coming from a place of uh, explaining how we arrived at this place called the United States and what the origins were and what led us here. So that documentary, I don't know, maybe it's like an eight-part series, really cheap on DVD, or it was like one of the longest-running documentaries on Netflix for a while. Sort that out and look at our past because, you know, if you don't know the past, you can repeat it over and over again, but it's a blueprint for the future as well. So you see where we're moving toward. Unfortunately, a lot of it's negative, but brilliant series on, on our country and how we interacted with other countries and different leadership models and what got shoved aside. Just, I couldn't say enough about the book. Oliver, as a filmmaker himself, I mean, when I heard uh, Echo Charles saying that he never saw a platoon on Jocko Willing's podcast, I went to the <laughs> research of Mike, Mike Echo's platoon is an unbelievable mu- movie about leadership and, and humanity, un- unbelievable stories. And that's, that's uh, Oliver's foundation. And fortunately he gets a bad rap nowadays as being like a conspiracy theorist, but He's just really a, a truth seeker, and and um, yeah, I think he's comes from a place of uh, positivity. So that would be great movies to watch. Platoon and and his documentary, uh, Untold History of the United States. Because unfortunately, growing up, um, I was always fascinated with history, but we were only fed a small portion of it. And you know, it's his history, his story. So written by the victor. So. A lot of that stuff that we didn't hear the other side, which is important to have that balance again of hearing both sides, what we did right, what we could have did better and why we did certain things. Mm-hmm. No, I agree 100%. I actually worked not with him. I was on set, one of one of his films, a World Trade Center movie, and oh, he yeah. was directing that. Um, but I think I would love to get him when I saw his uh, one on Vietnam. And it was incredible because, you know, again, it told all the sides. It told the North Vietnamese side. It told the, you know, the, the preceding story before that, you know, with the French. And, and, and they're like so many of these conflicts. They, again, reverse engineer for generations and generations prior to that. Um, and then with Platoon, I had Captain Dale Dion, who I worked with doing the Terminator show. And uh, he did the military boot camp for all the... Yes. And he was in it he as well. He was the first he, one to do that, I believe. Yes. Yeah. And then did Band of Brothers and uh, Saving Private Ryan and um, you know, some other ones where he's actually working on one in Europe at the moment, a brand new kind of Band of Brothers style um, oh, new great. series that I can't... I forget the name, but I can't wait to find that out. I'm trying to get him back on again when he's done with that, but... Man, what yeah. a treasure he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in Oliver's autobiography, he talks about like the, the rah-rahness of uh, Captain Dale Dye and 
pro-war and all that and how it conflicted with him. So it was really interesting to see, you know, the juxtaposition of their personalities and their views and how it uh, played out in Platoon. And, uh, the, the story comes from, from his birth all the way to the finishing of Platoon and just unbelievable lessons he had from, he, I didn't even know that Oliver was like in Vietnam before he even volunteered to go to the army, yep. which was crazy. I had, you know, so many, th- so he had a different lens from the get go yeah. of the war and then how he came to reconciliation of how we didn't belong there and what have you. But uh, his world traits in a film and had two good mates, uh, Tommy McMahon and uh, George Menig that uh, contributed as technical advisors. And I remember when they were filming that in Playa Vista at Howard Hughes's old um, hangar mm-hmm. and they recreated Ground Zero and I went down to the visit. I was it was like, crazy, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow, that was eerie. Yeah, we, we were doing this. It. Yeah, no, they the, did with all the, the, you know, the scaffolding sticking out and yeah. not scaffolding, but you know, the, the pylons. And then inside was a complete mock-up of um, the elevator banks. That's where right. we did a lot of the shots. And yeah, you know, and we were hanging out with Long Beach firemen and Anaheim. We had about like five or six of us, you know, so there's always different local California departments all playing real firefighters in the background. And I didn't know that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was really, really crazy experience. Yes. Yeah. That was, that was definitely eerie. Yeah. Actually, I want to get, um, I think is it Will, Will Gimeno, I think was one of the Port yes. Authority guys that they pulled out. 511, who's, you know, we talked about before and one of the sponsors and an amazing company I work closely with. They just did an amaz- amazing interview series with some of the, um, uh, NYPD spec ops guys that pulled those guys out and they had those guys on as well. So oh yeah, they, God, they have a whole great. thing. If you haven't heard that yet, 511's video series, they did oh, for 9-11. I didn't. So, but I want to start plucking some of those guys and get them on here too. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Will. Yeah. What an amazing story, right? Mm-hmm. And then, but he's just one of the many guys down there with some just hair raising stories of uh, the uh, contributed down there and from, from victim to survivor and, and what have you. Um, I know one of the questions of jumping the gun is who would you like to have on the podcast? Please. <laughs> is um, speaking to just had one person in mind. Now it come to bring another one to my mind is uh, one of the guys that was on there on the, as the techno advisor, Tommy McHale. And he was a Port Authority PD detective and he had a dual role down in, in um on ground zero he was a he was an iron worker he had his uh union card so when he wasn't working on the pile as um doing recovery you'd go home and then and come back and work on the iron side and he's just one of these cops where you look at his resume and what he's done and the criminal investigations that he had and if i didn't know him i would think it was all horse shit (laughs) there's no way this guy was involved in so much but he was on the joint terrorism task force and he was uh, sent to Afghanistan and um, he was involved in the capture of uh, Abu Zubaydah and worked closely with John Kiriakou, who was in the agency and ended up getting rolled up uh, during the Obama administration as a whistleblower. And which is a, another crazy story of how you could become from hero to zero. Mm-hmm. So Tommy was, uh, yeah, suffered a lot of um, injuries to the state is dealing with down there. But he was there at the first World Trade Center 
bombing in 93 and he's just one of these guys we call him a shit magnet in, yes. in the profession just wherever something was happening time he was friggin' there and not only was he there he was just working at that top tier level and contributing whether it's uh, capturing you know cop killers where working on a joint task force with like the major case squad with nypd of going after working cold cases with um uh, Black Panthers that were assassinating cops in the 70s to, yeah, just kicking in doors with um, SOCOM guys in Afghanistan. So from a guy, you know, Irish kid working in the streets of Jersey and, and New York City to do that, I mean, just he's just a Superman, just one of my heroes of of, of um, one of the many heroes that people don't know about. So I think you should he would have some great stories to tell and some good lessons and of perseverance and resilience and and just never letting go and going forth and just doing amazing work so that's definitely someone you should have yes let's make it happen if we can yeah yeah i'll link you guys up brilliant thank you all right well you mentioned oliver stone's book are there any other books you want to throw in there yes um have you heard of a book the four agreements by yes. don miguel ruiz i think it is really simple book i think it's only maybe 100 plus pages but wow, I mean, the four agreements, like the nutshell, I don't know if you could help me out here. It's, um, it's four essential, kind of like the Ten Commandments, but um, he writes a book about just four elements of, of living. And one of them we talked about, like, um, never make assumptions. And it comes into kind of, we were talking about what someone else thinks of you. It's none of your business. Mm-hmm. You know, always doing the best you can. And a couple others I'll leave out that you could sort out through the book. But a very simple book, but so impactful. And just really the guide for living. If you want to give someone a book and just say, hey, do this, and you're going to be set for success for the rest of your life. I wish as a kid someone gave me this book. Very easy to digest, but wow, the lesson's so hard hitting and it, you know, anyone could adapt, anyone could learn from it from whatever profession it is. So pick that up, audio, book, whatever it is, listen to that and that, that'll change a lot and distill a lot of, if you make your decisions based on those four, four things that he espouses, you're set. <laughs> you can't go wrong. Yeah. I've had that mentioned a lot of times. Actually, you know, I'll be completely transparent. I own it and it's sitting on my bookshelf and I haven't even read it yet. That's so, all right. And I need to, but yeah. uh, I'm reading Wim Hof's book to get ready for interviewing him on Monday. So yes. <laughs> it's yes. always, it's always that, but no, that's one I need to, because like you said, it's very small too. So, so yeah. All right. Well then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, what do you do to decompress? Lately, what I do to decompress me and speaking of Wim Hof, um, my girlfriend, Stacy, who also works on a job with me, um, we've been doing ice baths and uh, with uh, match with sauna. So I linked her up with um, XBT, Laird Hamilton's and Gabby Reese's uh, platform mm-hmm. of uh, recovery. So doing that has completely changed a lot of things for mostly for her, a little bit for me. I, I try to do a lot of things, but she's been really hot on the XBT program. So check out uh, what they're doing, Laird and Gabby, unbelievable, um, unbelievable athletes and completely changing uh, that world of recovery and resilience. She has a great podcast as well, Gabby. And uh, so, yeah, just trying to find, you know, the most uncomfortable thing to do and embracing it and coming out better for it. So whether it's sitting in a sauna at 225 degrees or being in an ice bath for, you know, five to 10 minutes, and um, 
and suffering from that initially and then but just thriving from it once you get out of it so it's the same thing where we talked about here being thrust into horrible environments but then coming out at the back end a way better person from it so been doing that and then trying to incorporate surfing throwing in that in there very enjoyable but very humbling and a hard hard hobby to really to to master which it's going to take me a long time at this point in my my life but man what a what a way to uh, decompress. I mean, just getting, and I tell people that live you know, by me anyway, the best, cheapest form of therapy is just to sit at the beach. It doesn't cost you a dime. You know, even if you go there for 10, 15 minutes, no one ever comes from the beach and says, I had a horrible day. You can have a horrible day and then completely change it by just staring at the water and just relaxing, not doing anything, put the phone away, you know, maybe bring a book if you got the time, if you're going to spend a few hours there. And that's the best, for me, I think the best way to decompress. If you have access to a beach or some kind of water-based environment, sit there and just zone out or connect, you know, whether it's surfing, swimming, or just, you know, just listening, being involved um, somehow. Absolutely. Yeah, that's my happy place, 100%. Yeah, yeah, I'm so fortunate to just a five-minute walk from it. So it's the the, the greatest, um, I think it's the greatest um, gift we have is the water. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's within us, right? It's what, what are we made of? Like, was it 80% of our body or whatever is made of water? Yeah. So it's like, that's who we are. So, so reconnect. Well, and we're also in the womb in water. And if you, you know, um, what's the right word? Buy into the theory of evolution, then we came from the water too. So, oh, I definitely a lot believe that. I always tell my girl, I was, I, in my past life, I was definitely a shark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's why I'm not, not scared to be in the ocean. I, I feel like sharks are my friends. So somehow, I, I was swimming around with them in some fashion. You know? <laughs> I'm like, oh no, you know, Southern California is filled with great whites, but I'm never going to be eaten. <laughs> I'm one of them. They know who I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if people want to learn more, um, where are the best places to find you online or on social media? Yeah, sure. It's just um, Instagram or Twitter, just uh, at Nako, K-N-O-C-K-O. Uh, Nako Nolan, just Google that, whether it's, uh, yeah through facebook if i know you you know if you have we have some mutual friends uh but uh, yeah f- my accounts are open on twitter and and instagram as nako and um yeah just sh- shoot me a message if you need uh if you need some help on whatever it is uh advice on movie stuff or on police stuff if you have family issues i mean uh, yeah, my dms uh yeah <laughs> I've helped a lot of people and get some crazy messages sometimes, but steered people the right direction and we just want to say hello. That's fine with me. And then, and then, uh, within that, um, you could hit me up. Uh, we have a podcast as well that I do with a great combat veteran, a friend, uh, named uh, Miguel Perez. And we do a podcast called the Armbar podcast, which had the fortunate, was fortunate enough to be asked on as a co-host, uh, with some other guys that started the podcast, some other, um, some great combat veterans. So discuss the same type of um, things that, that make us a better person and try to become better leaders and better people in our community. So a good positive atmosphere where we discuss a whole array of issues that drive us. So check me out there as well. 
Beautiful. Well, I just want to say thank you. I mean, firstly, thank you for driving two hours to come do this in the first place. <laughs> um, but also, you know, for for telling your story. I mean, it's it's really powerful for a number of reasons. Obviously, you went east and west coast like I did. You know, you talked about your time, you know, 9-11 and some of the, the more moving elements of some of the people that you've lost. You know, your perspective on the sex crimes with, with children. I mean, all these areas are just so important. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Uh, th- thank you for giving me the platform to um, to speak my stuff. I really appreciate it, and just to share the opportunity live, and um, and to connect with you. And, and um, you fed me. I don't know if people knew. I was like, <laughs> "Wow, come to come to James's podcast. You get a great meal. I had a great breakfast. <laughs> get to meet his family and uh, pet your great German Shepherd. Awesome time. So it's just two hours. Yeah, uh, someone extends that olive branch. That's two hours, four hours. A uh, um, a couple of states away, take it. You don't know where where that's going to take you, the trajectory. And same thing for your podcast. Well, I mean, you're you're hitting so many people. I probably don't even know that you're shifting seismic shifts within their life by exposing them to all this information, whether it's your stories or Josh Brolin or Colin Broderick, all the amazing guys that you've had on a podcast, Jason Gardner. Uh, Jeff McGreevy, all these guys that I love that are mentors of mine and just leaders in their community and in uh, the arts, man, just it's a beautiful life and you're exposing that. And, you know, I, I think there's no greater honor that to be part of that. So hats off to you, mate. I love it. Thank you for what you do. 